0: The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right. And good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the program. It's Tuesday, April the 11th. This is Open Line. I'm your host Patty Daly and David Williams is the producer of the program. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273 oh, 709 273 Or elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So expect some of your friends and co-workers to be in a bit of a better mood today. Bright, sunny, blue sky morning. Temperatures may be headed into the double digits today, so that's pretty encouraging. Also another sign that maybe we're on the other side of winter, the parking ban. The winter parking restrictions have been lifted in the city of St. John's as of 4 o'clock yesterday. Hope you're enjoying your Hockey All-Newfoundland, all or I guess we call it the Provincial Tournament at this moment. Yesterday I was at the D.F. Barnes Arena for the opening ceremonies of the U18B Provincials. And you know, it's one thing for the young players, maybe for their first road trip, and everyone will always remember those road trips. Playing a bit of mini sticks in the hallway at the hotel, it just feels like a totally different hockey experience. But of course, yesterday, it's end of the line, this tournament for many of the U18s. And so we celebrated some of their minor hockey careers, made a presentation to them. So, whether your first road trip and your first provincials or it's your final one, good luck and hopefully you're having a good time. All right, the Growlers' playoff schedule is in hand, uh, opponent to be determined. But you can buy our tickets now for the first home game. It's on Tuesday, April the 25th. They play again Thursday and Sunday at the Mary Browns Center. They're poised for a playoff run, maybe get their second Kelly Cup. But their captain, and the only captain they've ever had, James Melindi, he's hanging him up. He's retiring, and he won't be available for the playoffs. I'm not entirely sure why he's not available for the playoffs, but he's had a good run, and he has been a force to be reckoned with, let's just put it that way. So congratulations on a good run to Malindi. All right, uh, Canada yesterday beat the United States, of course, their arch-rival 4-3 in the Women's World Hockey Championships, and it was over the weekend. So actually, they blew a 3-1 lead in the third, but hauled on to win in the shootout in the ninth round and over the weekend, the great Marie-Philippe Poulain scored her 100 and 101st goals in a 5-1 win over the Czech Republic, becomes the fourth Canadian woman to score 100 goals for her national team, uh, joining, of course, Hayley Wickenheiser, Jana Heffert, and Danielle Goyette. All three of those players are in the Hockey Hall of Fame. All right, congratulations to Marie-Philippe Poulain. And it was on this date in 1989, Ronnie Hextall who was pretty crafty with his stick, not only puck handling, passing, and shooting, but slashing as well, but he became the first goalie to score a playoff goal. All right, this is a great story, and I appreciate someone, a couple of listeners sending it along. So this is about a young fella originally from Mount Pearl. His name is Brandon Fitzgerald. He was a hockey goaltender, he was bombing around the rinks, and he noticed, a, a notice, pardon me, uh, there was a note on the bulletin board in the rink that said they're looking for lacrosse players. So he said, I'm going to give it a shot. So this back in 2011. At the time, the province was trying to put together a squad for the 2011 Reebok Midget Lacrosse Championship, which was taking place at Whitby, Ontario. So Fitzgerald says, I'm going for it, was on the team, and of course a pretty new sport for many of the players from here. So they got pretty battered in the tournament, improved as the tourney went on, but Fitzgerald fell in love with the game. So he made his way to BC for a summer camp one time, and then they made the move full-time, permanent, moved out west, and now he's playing at the top levels of lacrosse, and he's a member of the team called the what are they called? The shooting Eagles. And they just won the All-West Lacrosse Championship. So There's lacrosse long considered Canada's national sport. Now it's been deemed that we have two national sports. Lacrosse being the summer national sport and, of course, ice hockey for the winter, even though they play lacrosse year-round. So congratulations to Brandon Fitzgerald chasing his dreams as a lacrosse player. And, of course, for many hockey players, they also take the time in the summer, many of them, to play some golf. You know, the land swap between Haley and Clovelly has now been complete. And sometime next month, Ballyhaley will be established at Clovelly, calling it the Ballyhaley Country Club at Clovelly Estates. Renaming the two courses, Ballyhaley North, Ballyhaley South. So there are still some looming questions. About three quarters of the members at Ballyhaley voted in favor of this. Reduced the number of golf courses on the Avalon Peninsula by one, which is probably very good for the market itself because maybe there was possibly one too many golf courses around this neck of the woods. One thing, you know, Ballyhaley's been there for over 100 years. And remains to be seen what's going to become of the property, even though I think the safe bet is that it will be a real estate development. But the fact that they had to reroute some of the holes, because technology has allowed even the amateurs to really be pounding the ball pretty long distances. And, of course, longer hitters may indeed be slicing or hooking the ball around, maybe putting some players uh, in jeopardy on other holes, and some of the homes adjacent to the golf course. That one's always been a bit of an eye-roller for me because when you buy a house on a golf course, you know the possibility for a golf ball to strike the house or end up in the backyard is there. But anyway, if you are on side with this move or opposed to this move or want to talk about the changing of locales for the Ballyhale Country Club, we can take it on this morning. And of course, they'd be operating electric golf carts. And an interesting story today regarding electric vehicles and the growth in popularity. Again, it's maybe not for everybody buy one if you want, even though the federal government is making a move towards some potential mandates regarding the numbers of electric vehicles that will be sold in the country, Ottawa says regulations that will require at least 20% of new vehicles sold in Canada to be zero emissions by 2026, now that's not set in stone yet, and increase into 100% of these vehicles by 2035. Uh, I'm not so sure that's going to go over very well because people don't want to be told what they can buy with their hard-earned money. But... In this province, electric vehicles have doubled in popularity, a 125% increase as a matter of fact. 398 vehicles were registered in the 2022 calendar year. Now it's jumped up to 715. So the number of registered hybrid vehicles has also increased by 53%, bringing the number to 2,149. That means that 4.4% of new vehicles registered last year were either hybrid or electric vehicles. And for some, they're all about it. Whether it be with greenhouse gas emissions, whether it be with the cost-effectiveness that is an electric vehicle. Big upside. I don't have one yet. Maybe I'll consider one in the the future. But, you know, that's still a pretty low number of vehicles when you look at the entirety of the uh, vehicle fleet in this province. But like many things, things in popularity, whether it be the hula hoop or the frisbee or electric vehicles, kind of move from west to east. So in British Columbia last year, 20% of new vehicles sold last year in that province were electric So it's obviously growing in leaps and bounds. And the rebates are, I think, enticing. Now you have to get into one of the so-called entry-level electric vehicles to qualify for some of the rebates. The provincial budget kept the rebate in place of $2,500 for an EV, $1,500 rebate for the plug-in hybrid, and, of course, an additional $2.2 million of investment money set aside to uh, continue building the infrastructure for charging stations, what have you. So it might not be for you, but it is going to be for many. And, you know, you do hear a lot of real bullish commentary coming from the mining sector about the most recent federal budget and some of the tax credits and incentives for clean tech manufacturing. And we know that one industry, mining for rare earth minerals, critical minerals, is going to see a very bright future in this province. So if you're in that business, in that industry, and you want to talk about what it means for your operations, on either side of that coin, let's have a go it today. And speaking of more quiet and more efficient vessels, Marine Atlantic has uh, entered into a five-year lease with Stena North Sea for a new ferry that's going to be on the runs, I think, in 2024. So it's going to be operated with dual fuel, so uh, liquefied natural gas, as well as diesel, lithium batteries, in an effort to cut down on carbon emissions. So they haven't really declared b- what kind of cost savings they will see for their operation, because it depends on a lot of things, right, of course the engine speed, weather conditions, and the like, but a new a vessel coming on stream for Marine Atlantic that is going to be cleaner and greener than vessels in the past. It's also massive. So the new ferry is going to be 203 meters in length. Now compare that to the Highlanders and the Blue Puttees. They're about 199 meters, so not a whole lot of difference in length, but 146 cabins, more than any other Marine Atlantic vessel, and 42 berth pods for individual com- accommodation, so new vessel coming on. For Marine Atlantic. And in all of that, you know, we can add up electric vehicles and critical minerals and all the rest of it. And now the most recent second and final 700 megawatt test at the Labrador Island link. So there's lots of things changing on that world. And via email, I was asked, why don't we talk about this one particular issue any longer? But of course, what we want to talk about is entirely up to you. So this particular listener, who's in Labrador, says, what about the fixed link? What's the status of any progress to move to the next stage? Whether it be going to the engineering firms of the world, the tunnel building companies to see their appetite and their involvement as a private operator, much akin to the Confederation Bridge joining PEI to the mainland. So I don't know what the status of moving forward is. The federal liberals and some of their policy conventions have indeed said they're in favor of, and they call it a nation-building exercise, It's been put in the hands of the folks at the Infrastructure Bank of Canada, but where we are, I don't know. I don't think there's been any legitimate progress made beyond the most recent announcements that we've heard. But next steps are next steps. Go out and see if anyone wants to get involved as a partner. And then there's other work to be done, and the ongoing, as much as people don't like it, our relationship with the province of Quebec and the completion of that highway route, I think it's 138. That's got to be done. And, of course, it's not just about building a tunnel, because we know that can be done. It's been done all over the world. And notably, we bring stories, or Mr. Dumaresk in particular, Danny Dumaresk, brings stories from his visits to Norway, for instance. It would also include a massive highway network upgrade on the Great Northern Peninsula. It would have to, if what they say is the potential positive upside for traffic, and not just people from Labrador with a much easier way to get to the island, more cost-effective to get to the island, but they talk about trucking routes and for tourism, I don't really know what the upside might be on that front, but someone said, why aren't we talking about the fixed link? Well, we can talk about that fixed link today. And hopefully the folks in the K-12 system, families and students and teachers, admin, everyone involved, the staff, are enjoying their break. But one curious story that I read this morning about, we know that technology is just moving at breakneck speed, and whether it be legislatures or law enforcement agencies, and yes, schools being able to keep up with it is a really fair question. So it's not that long ago when we talked about technology in the schools—not just smart boards and students with the ability to keep their cell phone in their hand or to use their iPad as part of learning and/or a potential distraction—but the whole world of artificial intelligence. And I will admit freely, I don't fully—I don't uh, fully—I'm not fully able, pardon me, to wrap my mind around it. But the one advent of this ChatGPT. So this technology is really something else. The concern has mostly been in the post-secondary ranks for using this technology to produce work for submission. Because you simply put in minor details and thoughts and subject matter and it can spit out song lyrics or essays, just about anything. So the concern now is moving from simply post-secondary to high school. And I would imagine into junior high and possibly even lower grades. So it does indeed pose a challenge for teachers. It's fun to understand what artificial intelligence means and how it can be used in your day-to-day life and in your professional life. But if it becomes a go-to mode, and in essence it's cheating, how do teachers even identify whether or not an essay or a project has been done with ChatGPT? It's growing in popularity. I mean, it's simply unbelievable. And the applications seemingly are endless. Now, there are people out there devising artificial intelligence that's able to identify if indeed a project or an essay or a song or what have you has been composed by ChatGPT. But as a high school teacher, even just anonymously, call her on line three. What do you know about this kind of technology, and what are your worries? Because if we take away the motivation to learn, because you just say, well, here's my textbook, here's the project, I'll simply input this into this artificial intelligence platform, it spits out the work, I don't need to do anything. Then it will certainly have a potential to downgrade any attention to critical thinking, which is hard to come by at the best of times. So as someone, whether it be a student or a teacher, administrator, if you want to talk about how this technology may indeed be utilized, what it means for the motivation to learn, because I think that's the next big question about some of these techs Take it on. Let's go. All right, quick one. We've been hearing from nurses and the College of uh, Registered Nurses about the expanded scope of practice. Now, the Newfoundland and Labrador Medical Association is also chiming in. Their president, Chris Luscombe, says, for starters, they didn't have any advance notice and were not involved in consultations about this expansion for scope of practice, which includes prescribing medications, diagnostic imaging, lab testing, referrals to specialists. So they've got some concerns here. He says, doc- Dr. Luscombe that is, it's unclear how information on assessments and prescribing will be passed on to the quote-unquote most responsible physicians. Also, he says, this move doesn't, go, doesn't do anything to reinforce family care teams or team-based care. So they have some concerns. The Registered Nurses Union has some questions and concerns. All these efforts to try to improve the delivery system, most importantly, I think, for patients, even though when the nurses are already feeling overworked and overwhelmed, adding to their workload is probably not that attractive, unless they're maybe working in a rural part of the province or in specialized care. But any of those types of questions, and even if you want to chime in on what you think they should be doing and talking about, investigating, in the review to long-term care and personal care homes, that's an important one that we can tackle again this morning. Let's go to the nation's capital. You know, for a little while there, it was all the rage. It was the biggest subject in the mouths of politicians. It was about Chinese meddling or interference in the 2019 and 2021 elections. The Prime Minister, of course, avoiding calling a public inquiry. I don't know how many people think that this is a massive issue or not. We need to ensure that people have faith in the elections. So whether it be the appointment of the Special Rapporteur, David Johnson, the former Governor General, and now I think what's going to be fascinating testimony to be offered on Friday in front of the Procedure and House Affairs Committee is the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford. No idea exactly what time on Friday she will be testifying, but we're told it will be about three hours' worth. And it was an embarrassing look for the Liberals when they had a filibuster at committee to avoid talking about and or to call Katie Telford. She agreed that she would testify, and that's going to happen on Friday. So there's a lot to that particular conversation, as you know. And hearing from fish harvesters very quickly before we get to the break about the price of 220 dollars per pound for snow crab, they're not going at it. They're not fishing for nothing, as they put it via email. All right, happy note before we get to your calls. Uh, Happy 60th anniversary to Hubert and Violet Sampson. They're out in Peterview. Hope you're both doing well and have the opportunity to celebrate your 60th anniversary with family and friends. So the very happiest of days to you, for myself and Dave and everyone here at Your VOCM. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineatvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show on this bright, sunny, blue sky Tuesday. That means you have to get in the queue and on the air. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin on the top of the board, line number one. Madonna, you're on the air.
2: Yes, hi. My name is Madonna Galloway. I worked for 40 years with the government, and my husband worked with Memorial University. I also volunteer with the Food Bank for the last 30 years, which is the only thing keeping me sane about being at home now, doing everything by phone and write-up, not getting much over to the food bank itself and making sure that the food bank is still going with with help, thank heavens. Now I'm reaching out for help because I'm a 76-year-old with a husband, 82 with dementia, and for five years I've been looking after him. He has $10,000 Blue Cross insurance. I have Canada Life Insurance. They're telling us that we're living in Torbay, that we can't get home care because we're living in Torbay, there's no bus system here. There's home care on the left side of me across the road because they have no insurance. There's home care on the right side of me here because they have no insurance. My MHA has reached out, and he's getting the same story. There's no bus in bay, But, I mean, there's no bus in most of the bays, but there's home care everywhere. And they're telling me that if, God forsake, I had to put him in a home, which I'm not ready to forget, I can't use that ten thousand dollars to pay for the home either. That ten thousand dollars is just going back to the government. After all, our life and I'm not a very happy camper. I'm just wondering if there's anyone out there that was in the same boat as me and that they finally found some kind of a home care that Blue Cross will pay because it's only so long you can do stuff for yourself. It's getting at the point now, like changing his clothes and and you know and making sure all his meds and. I'm no springs chicken either now, I'm sorry to say that, but, I mean, the money is there that we paid in all our life, you know? i just wondering if there's anyone out there that finally found some home care that Blue Cross would pay. Do we pay up front and get the money back? If I got to do that, I'll do it. I I need some sanity. I need, like, I'm not getting any sleep nighttime because it's after having five or six falls, and everything I hear, whether it's just a bathroom thing, I'm up, so... I'm soon going to be run down anyway and need someone myself. So, just wondering if there's anyone out there that know how to get home care and what the name of it would be that uh, that I could use. I don't care if it's an hour a day to go to the store to see another face. Nighttime would be nice for a few hours so I can close my eyes and know that he's not going to fall. Like is there anyone out there that can help me now?
1: Well, I sure hope so Madonna, and I can only imagine the difficulty of the situation that you find yourself and your husband in. So, with your insurance with Blue Cross, are they able to point you in any direction for companies they deal with, companies that they will pay? No, or I
2: figured they would, and I and I kept harping on them, and they're saying you have to find yourself. So, uh, Jody Wall, the MHA, they reached out to a few, and they're getting the same thing. There's no bus system in Torbay, but, but. it's everybody don't take a bus. If they're blessed enough God love them in town to take a bus and can't do anything, only a bus, because cars are so expensive, that's understandable. But most home carers would have to have a car because if they're down in Torbay at 9 o'clock in the morning and they have to be back in St. John's for 11 or 12, like, they need a car. I mean, and yet we're only 10 minutes from St. John's. It's not like I'm out in Harbour Grace or Clarenville or somewhere like that. I'm Ten minutes from Stavanger Drive, I'm just in the middle of Torbay. I don't know what the problem is. I don't know. And I can uproot him. If I could uproot him, I would get an apartment in St. John's, but to tell me because of dementia, that would really ruin me. He wouldn't have a clue where he was. He'd be missing the ocean view, or right here he goes from window to window. Torbay, remember? Like ocean view. Icebergs just keeps him going, but if i go to st john's i can get home care because i'm in torbay i can't get home care like i say 10 minutes so what do i do
1: well that's a good question madonna and hopefully sometimes i have some answers for folks who find themselves in one predicament or another Mm -hmm. but i've never had to deal with this at a on a personal level so i'm not really sure but i guarantee you there will be people connect with us today whether they call dave or send me an email try to point in the right direction, especially if they have personal knowledge of a home care outfit that Blue Cross has indeed covered on their behalf. So that's the question that I'm going to put out there. And anyone else who wants to chime in with any suggestions or help point Madonna and her family in the right direction, they send it to me. I'll get back to you with whatever I come up with.
2: I love you. I appreciate that because it's getting out of hand now. The weather is getting good and everything. And, you know, even just getting them out over those tree steps, it's... It's my home that I already left to the grandchildren, so I cannot root it with a 6- and 7-year-old and start putting ramps and stuff in now at this late date. You know, I mean, he's almost 83, so I just need help. If someone's with me, we can take him for a haircut. Someone with me, we can take him for blood work. But me on my own? You know, it's just really getting too hard. That's the problem. The medical department, s- never. Gets.
1: Understood. So you say you're simply not ready. So that's an emotional not ready for your husband to be in a home?
2: Yeah, it is. But if it's going to be to save his life falling, I know he can fall in a home too, but there's more people around. But I just have to suck it in, don't I, and say, if I can't get anyone here, you know, he's going to have to be taken care of because... This is just ridiculous. I mean, you can't close your eyes. I'm not going to be any good to him or anyone else. I'm not resting, you know. I'm Luckily to be a sleeper that can hear him because the few falls that he did have, like he'd miss the bed if he's going to sit down he's on the floor, I can't get him up. Luckily I have a foster child in the basement. We have no family, that's the problem. Like, I was a 50-year-old that found out I had a tumour. I couldn't have children, one who would love children. I had 55 foster children, so... They're everywhere. I can't find them anymore. So I had just one brother. My family are gone because of my age. Leo had a brother came to Torbay that we were so blessed. And The poor little bugger was here one month. Came down with cancer to the esophagus. Stomach is gone. He can't lift Leo. He, he needs home care himself now. So we just have nobody. Just nobody.
1: Well, hopefully we can get you some help. In what form, I really don't know what's going to come in. But let's yeah. hope that a listener who's got, you know, lived experience with this and can really do something to help, and it's not my place to suggest you do X, Y, or Z on this front, whether it be in your own home or in a long-term care facility. But I'll see whatever help I can come up with uh, this morning. And myself or Dave Williams will call you back as soon as we get anything of note.
2: I love you. I appreciate that. And thank you very much. You have a nice day now.
1: You too, Madonna. Good
2: luck. Thank you. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye.
1: Oh,
3: bye so oh, boys.
1: All right, let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air.
2: Good morning, Patty. Good morning.
3: Yeah, some people out there living some tough situations. So I want to start with um, just a quick pick up on the EVs. Um, the, the headlines: basically, 4.4 percent of sales in Newfoundland last year were uh, EVs, either hybrid or um, or battery electric vehicles. And there's a theory that. That of a five percent tipping point then a country gets to five percent, then something becomes normalized, and then there's a massive adoption so the United States has already got there, China's already got there, and uh fifteen European countries have got so there's there's nine and south Korea there's nineteen countries now that have surpassed that Norway's another one and so you know I think we're right, at the cost of that change, but like you say, you know everybody makes their own decision the u s are actually skipping hybrids they their mass adoption of uh right to the fully electric vehicles
1: well you know there's going to be still some folks out there who don't want one uh, for whatever reason and that's up to them but it is happening and you know even with if you look at the global numbers we're still only somewhere around three percent of the planet's vehicle fleet that is fully electric so it's happening not at any real torrid pace necessarily but I thought the numbers when you looked at British Columbia, but twenty percent of new vehicles sold in that province were electric last year, that's really something. I mean, talk about tipping points of hitting five. At that at that number, they'll be electrified in a heartbeat. Transportation in this province adds up to about forty percent of the overall emissions. So there's reasons on a variety of levels. For me, I don't know if if I should say it or not, but the cost effectiveness for maintenance and ongoing operational costs, the EV looks very attractive to me. I don't know if I'm ready to buy one today, but I'll be I'll be surprised if in the next number of years myself and my wife don't replace our vehicle with an electric vehicle, especially simply for the bombing around town, which is the vast majority of the driving we do anyway. So yeah, it's happening.
3: Yeah, I mean I see it kind of like a situation where you're uh, you'll ha- you'll have one EV and maybe you'll keep one gas vehicle for. You know, for the people who have range anxiety and all that kind of stuff. But, but like you say, we'll we'll see one step at a time. I uh, last week I uh, actually it was two weeks ago now. I actually asked ChatGPT a question: Is artificial intelligence a threat to humanity? And the answer is very sobering. I posted on my Facebook page, but it basically said, Yeah, there's there's lots of benefits, including medical diagnosis, scientific research, and more efficiency. However, it then, it then went on to list off. Uh, five reasons why we should be really 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 concerned. It was, you know it was, it was very, very frank and sobering, but you know so, things like like AA, AI may exhibit behaviors that were not intended by their creators, resulting in unintended consequences that could have significant negative impacts on society job uh, job displacement, bias and discrimination, which is interesting. I listened to an article the other day, and if you ask Google who the number one goal scorer in uh, world, soccer or football it'll come back and say uh, i can't remember the name of the guy it comes back and says a guy but then when you ask how many goals has christine seclair scored in international soccer matches it's like 50 percent more but there's already bias in google because an ai can adopt those exact same biases security risks actually said one of the big things we need to be concerned about is cyber attacks you know, when you got humans behind the computer, it's one thing, but when you got computers behind the computer trying to hack into stuff, and then autonomous weapons that could, if not pop- properly regulated, could result in all kinds of intended unintended harm. So when Elon Musk and a thousand other scientists wrote a letter last a few weeks ago saying we should, we need to put the brakes on this stuff till we figured out, you know, that uh, that's a significant harm potential issue that we all need to worry about.
1: Well, I don't know how many people on the face of the earth know much about artificial intelligence, how it works and the design and the risks or the upsides, but when it's, you know, probably a limited few, when we talk about 8 billion people, then before long, when it doesn't have the social consciousness and it's not part of the public discourse, it can get away from us very, very quickly before politicians try to wrap their mind around it or school administrators wrap their mind around it and post-secondary institutions because... If people are not thinking and talking about it, then, of course, there's very little political will or attention given to it. Next thing you know, we're trying to legislate and play catch-up. And for some of these issues, and I'm not in the business of making people fearful of advancements in technology, but things are happening so quick, I, I admit freely, I don't know much about it. And I do, when you say the risks that were identified by GPT itself and how it's going to be potentially utilized in any school setting from kindergarten right through post-secondary. I think there's a chat we need to have about this.
3: Well, when Tony Stack retired in his post-retirement interview, he said Newfoundlanders now rank at the bottom in the country for critical thinking and problem-solving. And and I was really surprised by that because you know, I, I always felt like that was our superpower. You know, like if you go back in time a Newfoundland or Labradorian, was someone who could make almost anything out of anything and make almost anything work. And very, very quickly, within a couple of generations, for whatever reason, we've lost that. But now imagine if you insert basically all our thinking into, I mean, you know, calculators and stuff. We no longer have to memorize our times tables and all that stuff. And you just, just got to, we, we do need to try and think for a little bit further forward than we have been in the past.
1: Fair enough. No argument come from me. We're going to try to organize someone to come on and really break it down to bite-sized morsels and maybe some more layman's terms and versus some of the articles that I've read because some of it's just over my head, to be honest. I mean, I hate to admit it publicly, but that's the truth. Uh, last comment, Tom, before we take a break.
3: Sure. I want to plant a seed for an action item for businesses, sports teams, families, to start using reusable water and uh coffee containers. Maybe, most people may not be aware of this, but Tim Hortons offers a 10-cent discount if customers provide their own mug. It's got to be clean. It's got to have a lid. Jumping Peen offers a 25-cent discount. So, I, you know, I look around at all the sports teams and the different people walking around with those reusable, pla- you know, with with just plastic bottles. A lot of sports teams show up and they got they're just got those bottles of water. Like, I think we can do better. And, you know, I'd love to, start a, a bit of a movement for people that have reusable cups and reusable water bottles for sports teams and that kind of stuff. Everyone have a great day.
1: You too, Thank Tom. You. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we get back, we'll talk about moose, moose licenses in particular. Don't go away.
0: Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go to line number
1: three. Brian, you're on the air.
4: Good morning, Patty. How are you?
1: Excellent, thank you. How about
4: you? I'm a first-time caller.
1: Welcome to the show.
4: So I'm uh, calling on behalf of the, the residents, the hunters, of uh, the Eastport Peninsula, Traytown, Gambo, Here Bay Dove area. Uh, once again, uh, the Wildlife Lake Division has decided to cut the moose quota in Area 42, Gambo, and 27, Terranova, which is the only two areas I'm calling about. And I want to make clear right from the get-go, I am not against... Outfitters I'm not against the non-residents, okay? So over the past four or five years, we've been seeing not only reductions to the moose quota for the residents. And a lot of the people that hunt this area are older people. They rely on the moose. It's a part of the food source. And once again, this year, the Wildlife Division decided to cut another 50 licenses in 42, and which is Gamble, and 50 licenses in Area 27, which is Terranova. Uh, these two areas are adjacent to each other and they're divided by a river. The same way Mount Pearl and St. John's, is divided by a street, like you might say it. Fair enough. So, Patty, they've been cutting back the resident hunter and it comes out this time of the year when people, far, far, far from their mind, is moose hunting. People are getting ready for spring, getting their patio sets out, and this is the time that the moose quota comes out to apply for your licenses. And how I came upon this but then I was talking to a Wally official who was doing ice patrol for trouting at about 12, 14 days ago with three other guys, and he informed me I met this guy a couple years ago. I don't know him. He just said, I heard your hair was getting cut again. So, Patty, I started digging into it. And, you know, when I started looking at the numbers, you know, it's not fair. Like, I spoke to Minister Bragg's office. He answered the phone for about I had a conversation six, seven minutes. He put me on with a biologist in Gander, and I spoke to him about an hour and a half. And after I finished talking to him, I asked him some questions. It was like, okay, that went nowhere. So I reached out on Facebook, and I got a hold of the citizens in the area, and it's unbelievable the response I got. And, Patty, I got people calling me from CBS, Foxtrap, Green Bay, Gander, and these moose quarters that's caught are done very quietly. And just to give you an example, the non-resident, who I'm not against, they get 15% of the quota for the Moose allegation in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, okay? They don't get no increases. They don't get no decreases. Those licenses were given to them back in the late 70s, early 80s, and they had no changes. So in Area 42 Gamble, uh, in 2012, Eugene Nipper had a group on him, you might have I don't know if you were talking to him or not on open line. You probably were about the people getting hit with vehicle accidents and this kind of thing. And the government put out moose lights in by grandfathers, put up fences up on the side of the highway. At the end of the day, they put out 5,100 licenses extra in the province. I got that right from the biologist about 10 days ago. Area 42 and 27 received no quota increase, zero. Okay? We have a very high presence. Of non resident hunting in this area. Okay, Patty? So in 2012, they put those licenses out. In 2014 15, the Wally Division cut 50 licenses in Gamble. Then in 2018 19, they cut 50 licenses in the Gamble area and 50 in Terranova. And now in 2023, they're cutting another 50 licenses and another 50 in Terranova. And as it sits right now, if these cuts go ahead, the residents of this province in this area would get 56 licenses for 42, and the non-resident gets 44. And in Area 27, there's 138 licenses for the resident and 62 for non-resident. That's 44 and 46% of the quota for a non-resident, and the resident is the one that's being caught all the time. So how can they justify it? The biologist says it's about moose management. Well, I'll tell you about Moose Management, Patty. You look at the Cornbook here. I took three years in comparison. Cornwall got 1,474 licenses, almost 1,500 licenses for residents. There's only 76 non-resident licenses. St. Anthony got 562. They only got 38 non-resident licenses. Mr. North, Mr. Braggs, the minister's district, he got 576 licenses for residents, and only 24 non-residents, and his area is bounded by the Trans Canada for 42 gamble. So why is it that this combined area with 2,612 licenses only got 138 non-residents, and Gamble and Nova got 198 combined licenses and 106 non-residents? And they said that the moose population is, is all about moose management. Is that moose management?
1: Doesn't really sound like it. Uh, so. I suppose some of those numbers and the amount of out-of-province licenses or outfitters would be the presence of and the numbers of outfitters that are set up in one area or another that would influence those numbers, I suppose, right, yes, Brian? Yes,
4: and, and the biologist told me that the non-resident, and I'm not against the non-resident, I'm looking for, I'm looking for fairness for the residents, the non-resident fills 88% of the quota. So based on those numbers, if, if Area 27 and 42 combined got 106 moose licenses, for non-residents, in the next five years, they're going to take 490 animals. Now, Pat, you know what that tells me? That tells me that the population in that area is healthy enough to sustain that. So why are they cutting the residents? They increase the license for non-profit organizations, which I don't have a problem with, the large club, the fire departments, the over 50 clubs. That's the only thing they survive on. They can't afford to go to the store buy beef. Sure. So they increase their licenses. The non-residents haven't been touched in 43 years, and you can fact-check it. This is numbers I got from the biologists. But the residents in Gamble and Terranova had a, a reduction of 256 licenses in the next in the last six years. There's no meetings with the wildlife. There's no meeting with the biologists. There's no consultation with the local person. I spoke to residents in Eastport. The average hunter paddy is in their mid-60s to 80. It's a food source. They say, you go to Dominion and buy a roast. You get one meal of it. A quarter of meat is a year's supply of meat, and it usually feeds tree families. So these cuts are affecting more than the moose. If the moose population is so bad, why isn't everybody sharing the burden? We're saying it's not. We're saying that there's enough animals there for the non-resident, for the outfitter. They're bringing in people. They're supplying jobs. No one got a problem with that, but you just can't keep cutting the residents. And it's time for uh, I contacted MHA, the Minister, uh, Dr. John Hagee. I know him personally. I got no response back. I sent a letter to Mr. Bragg's office, no response back, because he represents Here Bay Dover. John Hagee represents Gamble, and Lloyd Parrott represents the Eastport Peninsula. I called Lloyd Parrott's office. He wasn't there. Ten minutes later, he called me back. I got no response from Minister Bragg's district. I got no response from John Hagee, who was an MHA. He selected body people for the people. And I spoke to a biologist, or a guy in Wally, who worked in True Corner Book, who's retired in Gamble. And he told me, if, if you look at the dates and look at the mental license that's cut by the residents, that's discrimination. Mm-hmm. How can you take 256 licenses from residents and not touch nobody else?
1: That's a fair question. Absolutely, 100%, Brian. What... Uh you know, there's questions as to whether or not the animals are there. So what's the success rate look like in Gambo? Because overall in two two thousand eight, two thousand nine success rate which of course depends on you know the savvy nature of the hunter, their patience, and the rest of it. But seventy four percent last year. It was uh, just under fifty eight percent. A couple of areas around here that I know of, and people that have licenses in these areas, is uh, we call them the MMA, the most management area. So Salmonier, Saint John's, which is uh, thirty three and thirty five, success rate was thirty two and a half percent. So what's it like out your way?
4: Okay, so gamble according to the biologist stats, and you go on the website for wildlife. Gamble got a 53.6% success rate. Area 27 got a 50% success rate. But listen now, Patty, here's the thing. They're looking at those numbers. The average hunter in our area, I've seen uh, uh, hunters up there last year, i seen the pastor, I was talking to him from Centerville. He was leaning over to buy his truck with a puffer. These hunters can't get in the backcountry. The first 18 kilometers going up to Forest resource road in Gamble was cut out 20 years ago. That's all grown up. So the moose are there. I don't know no problem filling a license. You give me 10 licenses, I'll fill them. And the problem is our population is getting older. And not only that, Patty, you take the Eastport Peninsula. For a man over there, I was talking to, the, to the, the, the ex-mayor of Eastport, for them to leave Eastport and fill their truck up for one day hunting has cost them $140 in gas. So they've got to pick their time to go. But at least if they got a license, they can pick their time to go. You can't base it on the success rate because there's other variables in play. Why does the outfitters have 88% quota? I'll tell you why, Patty. There's a retired engineer who worked for forestry. The forestry department was forced to put the roads deep back in the country because they need a product for places like Sexton and Cornerbrook. So the forestry put the roads back deep in the country. He was working with them at the time. They put bridges in. Now, all of a sudden, there was no interaction with non-residents, but now the roads have stretched so far back in the country, the bridges are there, all of a sudden, there's interaction. And all of a sudden, oh, there's a problem. So what did forestry do? The last three or four years, they put in heavy plantations. Then two years, we took up all the bridges. So the non-resident can't get in, or the resident can't get in there and that's freshly cut open. The bridges are took up. Interesting. And, you're, and you're driving up all the roads. The bogs are still there. Uh, Patty, there's 12 or 14 moose hanging around Joey's Lookout. I mean, I know the country. I, I live three kilometers down, through gamble. The moose are there, and they're based it on numbers. Anybody can fabricate the numbers, but if it is that bad, why is it the reds the only one being cut?
1: I totally, listen, I think that question is 100% legit. And, you know, if the average age of hunters that you've quoted here in this conversation, I mean, not to generalize, but the older you get, the more difficult it becomes for, you know, 12 hours worth of walk around the bogs and the barrens to get your moose, so I... Completely understand where you're coming from. We will 100% follow up with the minister's office at the first uh, opportunity.
4: And, hey, Patty. Before you go, listen. Uh-huh. I got. I got to say something. Like, like I took this on because no one else was going to do it. And I said to the biologist, "We're almost in the same state as Fog You know what he said to me? He said, "Fog don't have any." I said, "We're knocking on the door." And not only that, Patty. I said, "Why is it that you open up, You go under. You get your." person there, to go under the wildlife act and Gwen, you'll see every crook and corner of this province, the success rate marked in, if you go online and see it, where's the non-resident success rate? Oh, It's not there. Why don't they send out the books? You know what the biologist said? When they send the books out with the license, no one reads them. How do he know that? <laughs> no, seriously, that yeah. was his answer to me. And you know something, you are out of touch. And I'm going to tell you something, Patty, with that racial of non-resident hunters, I'm glad there's outfitters up there. Because I'll I'll take a term out of Siobhan Cody's book. We'll take whatever tool is in the toolbox to use. Because if they can say there's a healthy hunt for non-residents, there's got to be a healthy hunt for residents, and it's not right. It's a part of the food chain. It's important to the residents of this part of the province is the seal is to the place in Labrador. And just in comparison, Patty, I'll I'll call spade a spade. Let's go down to Hopedale, go down to coastal Labrador, and walk in and say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you 56 car licenses. And we're going to get 44 to the mainlanders. You think they won't be drove out? Listen, I'm looking for fairness. Uh, what we done, I set a petition up. And I'm going to tell you something, it got traction. It's unbelievable that people that's have contacted me, it's unbelievable, who's upset and don't know how to voice their concern. And I put a petition in all the areas, and people are phoning me saying, give me more sheets. And this is only about moose. Listen, this this is about look at the cost of living. They come Command T V and so anybody getting GST or anybody that's got a got a child getting one hundred and thirty eight dollars or two hundred dollars, what do you do, Patty? Go to the minion, get no name chicken burgers, no name vegetables, no name this. Moose is a is a protein that's that's excellent for the birth and is a year supplied meat and there's no consultation. So why isn't it? Why are they hiding behind the numbers?
1: Well it's money. I mean let's be honest if you're able to support uh, money coming in from out of province and or the outfitters which are an actual industry everybody gets yes. it but that doesn't mean your question was unfair as to why the locals are seeing the amount of qu- licenses cut for them and not for the other areas and I know you know there's nothing quite like out of province money it's a good thing but we have to strike a balance much more fairer than you've described this morning Brian I got to go but I really I appreciate one more, the call I'll say one more thing on first time
4: caller I'll say one more thing sure a, a, a person who was, who was I guess, their, their relationship with an outfitter contacted me and says, like, I clarify my post. I'm not against non-residents. But listen, you just said there, money coming in from the province, and I'll sum up on this one, money coming in from the province is always good. But you tell the gentleman in Dover or Eastport Financial or Traytown, who's 75 years old, who paid taxes all his life. This moose was introduced to the province of Newfoundland back in the 50s as a food source, and now it's being shipped out. And this liberal government, under Mr. Bragg, he's the minister, he got to be held accountable. He signed off on the, on the cuts, and he's out of touch. And I hope you do get a hold of him, because they got an answer to the citizens. We, we're asking for a meeting. I can't get nobody. And I asked Mr. Parrott, would he uh, take this petition to the House of Assembly? Sure. So, Patty, I hope you get a response back. Like I said, I'm not against the, the non-resident. I'm right. not against the outfitter, but we're looking for fairness. I'll get him on. So thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Brian. Appreciate Have your time. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. The passion is obvious there. And, look, that's a fair question about fairness in how the licenses are adjudicated year in and year out. If the locals are seeing the cuts as articulated by Brian versus the out-of-province license and or for the outfitters, then there's a question to be had and asked, and we'll see what we can do. Well, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. As I struggle with my headset, uh, let us go. We're line number two. Uh, good morning, Charlie. You're on the
5: air. Hello, Paddy. Mornings to you, sir. Yes, Good morning. Paddy, just a good couple of questions and a couple of quickies before I get to the main one here. Uh, I'd like to congratulate uh, um, Guzhu and his team for for their great showing. I, I don't know why people expect Canada to, 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 to have to win to be successful. A lot of people seem disappointed, but I thought they represented us uh, in a very fine way. Uh, sure they
1: did, but the team was disappointed, so if they're disappointed, can't the fans also be Experiencing no, a we, sense of we, disappointment? We,
5: well, we shouldn't be disappointed in, in in the sense that we have our expectations that they should win every time. They uh, they the, to to go to the finals at that level because they were ranked, as you know, as uh, in the world as team number four. So uh, you can be disappointed, but not in the sense of. Uh, 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 they should have won it you know what I mean but
1: anyway I don't think anyone calls it a failure but the disappointment is just natural when you're following sports yeah, you know yes, and no one expects them to win every time they haven't won since 2017 and you know the, the, uh, the four time defending champion in Sweden we beat them twice in a row and then we beat the Swiss and yeah. we were playing really well and then when it was all on the line we just didn't have the sharp game that we had the three prior games so I think that's how even Brad Guzio himself describes it and of course you ran up against a buzzsaw with Muat. I mean that team Mark Nichols called it A clinical dismantling is pretty much what it was. They're very stout. So I I think the, you know, I don't think people are calling it any sort of distinct failure. Uh, But when you get that close, it'd be nice to polish it off.
5: Oh, I I, I agree with all that, but uh, some people see it as a failure. But anyway, I'll I'll leave that. Okay. On the Moose thing, um What's the ratio of licenses given to uh, locals as opposed to outfitters for outsiders?
1: Well, it depends on the zone, as was pointed out by Brian. There's a different allocation in different parts of the moose management areas, and I think some of that would be influenced with just how many outfitters or how popular these spots might be for out-of-province hunters, which kind of skews it. So I don't think, if you just look at every moose license in every moose management area, you probably don't get a very specific view because he was talking about his zone and how many uh, locals have seen a reduction their, alloc- their allocation versus the no reductions in out of province or outfitters. So I think it's a zone by zone uh, issue.
5: I, I, I guess that's right. Okay. The Van uh, Timmons thing. Uh you probably re- recall that when she was hired, uh, 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 more than a few people talked about the pay packet at, the, at, at that time as being outrageous. I, I, I'm sure you recall some of that, do you?
1: Well, of course, every time there's anyone hired, everyone thinks the pay is outrageous. That's just the nature of the beast There, It doesn't matter who we're talking about. Ed Martin at Nalcor or Stan Marshall, who got paid the exact same money, uh, or Vianne Timmons and her $450,000 base salary. It all sounds fairly exorbitant to me, to be honest, you know, factoring vehicle allowances and housing allowances and other perks. It's a ton of money. A ton. I I don't don't know what the right number would be. They're all the same.
5: The guy is saying they're being paid like a corporation. A publicly funded thing is totally out of whack and obviously he'd like to do something about it. So I'd like to... uh, say, the more power to them, and I I, I hope they get those changes made.
1: I think it's bigger than that, though, to be honest. And that's only from the outside looking in. I'm not part of Munsu or Munfire or anybody else. But let's just say the next president gets signed for $300,000, so $150,000 less. That does nothing to change the governance structure. That would just be a feel-good for people who think that some of these folks get paid too much. But I think the bigger comment that they're making is that the governance is like a private or publicly traded on the big board or corporation versus a post secondary institution. So even if you reduce the numbers of pay and the numbers of VPs, that doesn't change the governance structure. So I think it's a catch-all that will really improve things for Mon, the reputation and the efficiency of the institution.
5: Okay, I think it's 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 a big first step to to to, to get in line with the province's finances. Anyway, uh, Tom mentioned uh, the critical thinking uh, being down in schools. How can you have critical thinking if you have passive learning? And uh, uh, from what I can gather, certainly when I went there, And from what I can gather from my children and from people who I talk to now, it's still basically a passive learning situation in high schools, many of them, as well as in university classes. Now, there are exceptions, political science classes and so on. But in the main, people sit there and take notes and so on. You can't develop critical thinking like that. The Argett study uh, in around 1990 looked at classrooms across Canada, social studies classrooms, 10% uh... were classed as doing an ideal dialogue and that's still the case Today, but anyway, I'll leave it at that. I think
1: that gets further jeopardized with some of this artificial intelligence, to be honest with you. I have one listener who's saying via Twitter that uh, he's instructed his child to use it as a refining tool as opposed to mining for information. You know, but my only thought on that would be is if I can rely on, say, for instance, ChatGPT, all I need to do is uh, acknowledge the input info and just accept the outcome. It doesn't mean I actually understand it. it, doesn't mean I've actually learned anything. I've just learned how to manipulate an artificial intelligence tool, which I think is vastly different than critically thinking your way through the curriculum and coming up with an end product, whether it be writing on an exam, which of course has been a bit of a lost art, and or writing an essay or a poem or a song or a whatever, because if someone else or some entity is doing the work for you, it doesn't mean you learned a bloody thing. Uh, Charlie, I know you want to talk about uh, outer space. Can, you, uh, can I put you on hold, get to the news on time and come back? Okay, sure. Yeah, let's do that. I didn't realize what time it was. So let's put Charlie on hold, take a break for the news. When we come back, we'll resume that conversation, then we're talking about a town hall that's coming up at Memorial University, and then we're speaking with you. Don't
0: go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's resume our chat with Charlie on two. Charlie, you're back on the air. Charlie, you're back on the air.
5: Oh. Yes, on the the Webb Telescope, uh, I was watching 60 Minutes there uh, Sunday night, and uh, the idea that uh, light travels, I learned a long time ago, 186,000 miles in one second. So picture then how how far that light would travel in a year. Right. Then picture how far it would travel billions of years. And that should make you feel a little bit tiny. But anyway, <laughs> Patty, the idea of uh, there's so many, so many planets, so many stars. The idea that we still maintain a lot of us on this Earth that uh, we're alone, or if people who concede that we're not alone, but uh, we can't be visited. I think it's time we put that behind us.
1: Well, it depends on how people see and how they absorb or digest the pictures that the the uh, Webb telescope is sending back. It's only been operational since uh, I think July of last year. I mean some of the photos are just unbelievable. This most recent one, the green monster that I saw, is really extraordinary. But it doesn't scream to me that there's necessarily any intelligent life inside that supernova no. image. But it might there might be. I really don't know. But if you you know, read the quotes like impossibly massive galaxies and the Comprehensive profile, I'm trying to remember what they said, of the exoplanets' atmospheres. So I don't know what that means for any other intelligent life, but the photographs themselves are simply phenomenal.
5: Well, to, to, to me, just looking at the vastness and the number of planets and stars, it's, it's just silly that, that, that we would be the only ones. But what I'm talking about is the actual evidence that's coming to light it's been finally taken seriously by the u uh, s committee and, and and the Russian government and a whole lot of other sensible bodies that but people uh, uh, would still insist that there's nothing happening out there it's happening out there we we just can't explain it we have no idea if they're manned. my my theory is they're unmanned probes that are out there, but it's happening. And it's the biggest story ever, and it's being shunted aside because people can't accept that that uh, that's happening, even when it's happening before their eyes to millions of people. You want to comment on that? Well, I
1: mean, some of the evidence that even the Pentagon has shared is brings upon some questions about the physics that we understand and the possibility for objects to move like that. So I don't know, but the. The uh, accounts of some of the fighter pilots and what the Pentagon has released and what's been presented in front of the Senate committee and the work that the Russians are doing and talking about is all super interesting. And you talk about distances. That one green monster that in Cassiopeia, I think it's called, is over 11,000 light years away, and it's 10 light years across. So we are talking about yeah. something that's enormous. Anyway. Yeah, yeah and I, I don't know about other forms of intelligent life. I think you're probably fair in saying that, you know, we're, it's a little bit foolish uh, and insular or insulated to think that we're the only intelligent life I'll use and use it very loosely uh, anywhere in any galaxy, but I don't know.
5: I mean, I just people, don't know. People people, over the years, if anybody would do, care to do any research on it, if they're interested, people over the years, not just uh, airline pilots and astronauts and people who are very good at observing things, People all over the world have, have reported uh, uh, these things for, for probably centuries, but certainly if we look at the last uh, uh, 50 or 60 years, and uh, it's not just in one place, it's all over. Now, some of them have been oaks, and people say, oh, that was an oak." So, therefore it proves, it proves nothing. It just means that people oaks. But anyway, uh, you can't deny the evidence of our own uh, eyes and... Uh, I would I would I would call it uh, the 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 biggest story of this century. What's happening right now, and finally the U.S. government's getting involved. But anyway,
1: appreciate the time, Charlie.
5: Okay, sir. Take care. All right, bye right,
1: bye. Right, right, let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the executive. No, pardon me, the E.D. of ex- External Affairs at Monsoon. That's John Harris. John, you're on the air.
6: How's it going, Patty? Thanks for taking my call.
1: Happy to do it. Doing fine today. How about you?
6: Good, good. Yeah, so I just wanted to, to get back in touch with, with you about a couple things. Um, uh, first, Firstly, I want to uh, talk about the, the dismissal of the, the no-cause dismissal of the uh, memorial president, Brian Timmons, uh, that happened just uh, hours before the, the Easter, uh, good you know, Good Friday. Um, so what we're hearing from Indigenous students is that they're very upset they have been left out of the... Uh, decision-making when it comes to this and uh, we're, we're really you know what we're hearing is we're not sure we're gonna get a, a, a accountability uh, uh, from uh, this Board of Regents on uh, on how you know this was let happen and uh, and, and we really want to encourage uh, some more participation uh, being given uh, opportunity being given to digital students to participate in this uh, roundtable that, that, that's going going.
1: Okay, so here's a question based in ignorance. What, what are we hoping to learn versus what we've already been told and some of the timelines and the uh, comments come from the genealogical experts and what have you. So what exactly are the unanswered questions and what do we do with the information now that uh, President, former President Timmons is out of the picture?
6: Well, that's the thing. See, you, you know, it's already a, a no cause dismissal. So anything that we are able to learn now will have no relevance because uh, you know uh, they're out of the picture. So the, the you know the, that's 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 the problem here is that when you have no cause dismissal for whatever the reason was, uh, this really does not scream accountability to anybody, especially when uh, they're uh, walking away with a corporate package of uh, you know almost half a million dollars or no i think i think it was over half a million and plus uh, other payout which almost equals up to a million dollars uh that that doesn't scream accountability uh, especially in a public institution i i think i've heard some some great remarks from uh, a, a number of people uh recently uh, on on the fact that this university is being run a, a, like a corporation you're seeing these big packages uh a contracts drawn up similar to you know ceos of Fortune 500 companies, uh, you know, the lavish salary. I know you were talking with a uh, uh, buddy earlier about the, the salary. And I, I just think that when we go to a new president, we totally need to reimagine what that hiring process looks like, what the job looks like. And we need to have a president that is actually picked by the community. That is, that is you know, and, and that's really going to restore faith in this institution. If, if indigenous students are consulted, if we have, uh, you know, the faculty being consulted, the general population, the community, and that their decisions are actually put into choosing that next president. I think that's going to prove uh, in an open search, that's going to prove that, you know, we, we're, it's going to give people, when they have a choice, you can have a, a stake in the success of the president. You have a stake in the success of the university. When you're, when you're thrust upon and, and forced a choice, you don't have that same stake.
1: I don't know how wide a consultation could or should be for hiring the next president because people will have their own agenda or their own thoughts or ideology that would gauge how they say yes or no to one candidate or another. And the focus on pay for me, I get it. You know, when people are struggling and you see these types of contracts and remuneration packages, it does seem quite extraordinary. But as pointed out by a listener, Vianne Timmons was paid 4% more than her predecessor, Gary Kachinoski. So is that even just reflective of a cost of living, or is the focus on Timmons, or is it on how we've arrived at this rate of pay, for whether it be now, CEOs, which Jennifer Williams gets paid less than Stan Marshall or Ed Martin, or how we pay or how much we pay a president at Memorial University? Because I think the larger conversation is how we got to this point, not about Vianne Timmons or Gary Kachinoski or anybody else. It's about the position. And what it looks like, how it interacts with the Board of Regents, how it interacts with the Students' Union. Because if you pay the next uh, incoming president far less than Vian Timms was making, that does very little to change the governance structure. It does very little to talk about Monfa's lack of a seat at the decision-making tables. It does very little to talk about the rate of tuitions or fees and the relationship between administration and, and Monsu. So I think we get really caught up in the money. And if you pay that person, whoever it is that comes in next, if there's not a change in how the you, the institution is governed and the governance structure, then we're kind of missing the plot. You know, people have a I, bit of a feel-good because someone gets paid less, but that doesn't change the water on the beans.
6: I, I, think you're, I think you're right on this. It's about governance. That's what we need to look forward uh, and, and, and change in this institution. We, we can't get bogged down uh, in the details. I agree with you there, but just to speak on that, uh, idea of uh, an open search. I, I think that you know, yes, of course, you know, people are going to have uh, agendas when it comes to an open search and, and have their own priorities. Uh, but you know, what what agendas are being currently served by the the, the private search of a few uh, administrations, uh, upper administration and, and border re- secret border regions? They they have agendas too. You know, and 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 the insiders that make those decisions have their own agendas. The agendas of the people and the students and the faculty are: we want a leader, we want a, uh, a someone that can take consensus from the community, that can uh, lead. And 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 I, well, I do agree you shouldn't get bogged down on it. You know, what do we pay leaders in this province? We pay our premier about two hundred thousand uh, dollars, and uh, you know, we, we we don't really need someone that's going to be out of touch by having a a $450,000 salary and not know the plight of the average student. Uh, but I digress. You're right. I don't, think it's, I don't think we need to get bogged down on the salary piece. Uh, it is about governance, and, and we definitely need some change. And I think showing that uh, getting on, on a good step going forward means having an open search with the, the feedback of students and faculty creating the decision.
1: Yeah. Uh, fair enough. So the town hall, give us some more details if you'd like to share before we take a break here. John?
6: Yes. Yeah, so uh, we've heard back from uh, all the ministers uh, and the premier, and unfortunately, they are not willing to attend our town hall. Uh, we, we gonna, we're going to have the, the interim president, Neil Bowes. We're going to have the PCs and NDP, But unfortunately, this, the, the government is willing to cut our education and double our tuition, but they're not willing to show their face in the university and explain to students why they're paying twice in tuition. So it's a really disappointing day. Uh, you know, we, we're not going to have a, a single government member come uh, and explain to students why uh, why their tuition is doubled. So, uh, but we're still going ahead with it. It's going to be on the 26th of uh, of April at 7 p.m. at the Breezeway Barn Cafe.
1: F- fair enough. The you know, I wonder what we should hope for a relationship between politicians, the House of Assembly, and Memorial University when there's. Generally speaking, the want for Memorial to be operated with more autonomy. So, you know, I know that the resulting uh, spike in tuition is because of the cut in funding from the provincial government. I think we also need to wrap our mind around just how we found ourselves in this predicament between the relationship between the government and the university, given the fact that before this $65 million cut, the transfer of millions of dollars from the province to Mon was very much like what the province of Nova Scotia transferred to university except in that case the same amount of money went to 10 or 11 universities in Nova Scotia versus one here so we have kinda of gotta look a little bit further back to find out a way to move forward because if we're just snapshot in time today and the doubling intuition we're probably not gonna come up with the best approach to to right the wrongs or to square the circles or to get some further control going on and protect the reputation and access and affordability of education, because the snapshot in time really doesn't tell much of the tale.
6: I, I totally agree with you. I, I think that you know what, what, what we have is a current government that wants nothing to do with this university. They, they want to wash their hands of it. They don't want the, the, the bad PR or whatever they perceive comes with it uh, at this current time. And that's not leadership. That's not – when you have a – it is a, a publicly funded university. It is a public university. Eighty percent of the money comes from the provincial government. Yeah. But you don't have a leader stepping up and saying, this is what we need to do. We have someone that says, uh, uh, you know, here's $68.4 million less. Uh, see what, let's see what happens. You know, This province needs an economic driver like Memorial, but it's been neglected. It's, it's been defunded. You know, students need a future. Students need to have affordable education. And, and, and that's why this this university was created in the first place, because we never had it. So so I, I, I'm, I'm just at a loss for words here, hearing that there's they're not even willing to show up and, and explain why. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really disappointed. Appreciate the time this morning, John. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take
1: care. You too. Bye-bye. It's John Harris. He's the ED of External Affairs for Munsu. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk a little golf with the Executive Director at Golf NL. That's Greg Hillier. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Executive Director of Golf NL. That's Greg Hillier. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air.
7: Ah, Good morning, sir. How are you?
1: Best kind. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. First time ever. uh, uh, Terrific. I'm glad to have you. Before we get into the local conversation and the strength of the golfing industry here, Valley Haley Club, Valley Swap, you know, it's a pretty much a Canadian heyday in the world of golf. You know, whether you have Brooke Anderson on the women's side, and there's a ton of fellows on the men's side who are making pretty big inroads. What do you take of Canadian golf and the presence on the major tours?
7: Oh, I think it's uh, it's phenomenal. You know, and and uh, and just to jump, of course, we have our local uh, Blair Bercy, who you're uh, quite aware of, is uh, absolutely. You know, just been a young phenomenon and, um, you know, all he needs is uh, is one great break uh, through his ventures right now in the professional golf scene. And I'm sure he'll uh, he'll make it along the way. So just on the local level, you know, we're very proud of what Blair has done over the years and, and continues to try and do in stride. But, uh, you know, that it really falls to the leadership when we talk about, uh, you know, golf as a whole in the country. I mean, I've got to give credit to Golf Canada. They have a vision of trying to put uh, 30 golfers on the professional tour, whether they're male or female, you know, within the next 10 years. And, and certainly, if you if you look at uh, you know what's happening now, even with the Masters this past weekend, you know, and uh, the results there, I mean, it's been it's been fantastic. And of course, uh, it also goes back to predecessors like um, you know Mike Ware and that, and of course his performance at the Masters in 2002, just to start with. So can't you know, believe that uh, over
1: 20 years ago. I remember quite clearly him and Len Matisse battling yeah. it out. And, you know, you yeah. say we're in some of their predecessors, the predecessors, uh, the, uh, the fellas in particular who blazed the path, George Knudsen, Stan Leonard, Pat Fletcher, maybe even throw Mo Norman in there, Stephen Ames. Yeah. But now you've got the Taylors and the Hadwins, the Connors, and a long list of McKenzie Hughes and others who are, they look like they've got the game to hang with the best in the world
7: yeah they do you know and again it goes back to some of the uh you know development that they've done uh, through golf canada i've been fortunate enough to be within the industry for the last 20 years and uh, you know saw the developments that have taken place both on uh, the provincial and uh, national levels and, and even the local level like you know right now i mean a lot of golf courses are finally getting into helping and assisting and promote uh, junior golf development and that's where all starts patty is at the grassroots and we're very fortunate in this province too we have a fantastic uh, you know junior golf program across this province and uh and we take the leading example from what's happening on the, uh, you know, Atlantic and national scene as well to help us.
1: Yeah, 100%. I know the Royal LePage Junior Circuit is really quite popular. and A lot of people really do appreciate the game of golf It's one of those sports for a lifetime. You know, throw tennis in there or swimming and the like, but golf is a game you can play forever virtually. So, you know, it also talks about accessibility some of that is a cost issue, some of that is access to a manageable tee time, and it's also the length of time it takes to play around. I know the whole world of golf is struggling with those issues, but what are some of those, the minor tweaks that can be made? Because you have like, for instance, the Black Duck course, or some of the Par 3s that are out there, because if you only got a couple of hours, as opposed to the 4, 4.5 required to pay some of the big 18-hole championship courses, that kind of Takes a big chunk of uh, people's day and you know, cost and accessibility. What are we doing on that front? Because more and more people playing golf is good for everything
7: yeah no it is i mean it's fantastic for the economy i mean uh, uh you know we did a, a in-house assessment ourselves of, of uh you know the, the the state of the golf community in newfoundland and labrador and also pre and and post-covid because i mean we need we need to see exactly where we're to and and uh, we've been very fortunate over the years you know we have a very diverse product in this province and actually 10 of the 21 golf courses of this province are 9 hole facilities and people forget that. You know, they look at golf as, well, you know, i got to play 18 holes. Well, right. even 18-hole golf courses actually, you know, provide twilight times. They provide, you know, early tee times if somebody's only available to play nine holes. Or, you know, so there's a very diverse product right across the province, and including the, you know, St. John's metropolitan area. Uh, people only get so much time. And I agree. Uh, you know, who wants to be out there for six or seven hours? It doesn't become enjoyable there, especially when you're paying for it. But, uh, you know, there is there is ways and means to do it. And, uh, you know, courses have adjusted some of their tee time intervals. So it's not as congested on a golf course and people, uh, you know, can get out and, and make the sport more enjoyable because that's really what it's all about. I mean, 99.99% of us are recreational golfers in reality. Uh, you know, that 0.01% are going to move on somewhere on the line and about you know, here's another fact for you. About 80 to 90, eighty to 85% of golfers uh, normally don't break 100. So, you know, we're looking at the recreational golfers, the mainstay of, uh, you know, the, the golf industry in this province.
1: Yeah, give me a track that has 10-minute intervals versus 8. It makes such a massive difference. And, you know, you talk about the, the very small percentage of golfers that will not only be able to break 100, but be able to do anything with the game like a Blair Bursey. So I would just throw this out there, and this is aimed at myself as well. Please don't pretend you can get to that par 5 and 2. Just hit the, yeah, no, <laughs> no.
7: And I encourage, I'll be honest with you, you know, dude, I'll, I'll get to a tee box and I look and say, do I want to play 500 yards or do I want to take the forward team, play 450. I think I'll play the 450 today because I'm going to enjoy it.
1: Yeah, there's um, a bit of bravado when it comes with pain, playing the tips it, when, you know, come on, right? Let's be <laughs> honest.
7: Okay. Exactly. And that's what happens sometimes too, right? People, you know, people just get to the point and say, well, I'm going to, you know, I saw, I saw the Masters this weekend and the boys were bombing it. Well, unfortunately, we're not necessarily into that same, same caliber of, of golfer and uh, be more realistic if everybody can in a sense. And you'll make it more enjoyable for yourself too. That's what I try and do when I go out.
1: Yeah, my 7R does not go 220.
7: Yeah, (laughs) It's just how
1: it works for me. Okay, let's talk about uh, the local product here. So if I remember the numbers correctly, at the beginning of the pandemic, even though there was some silly stuff in place, like you couldn't take the flag out of the hole and all those types of things, I think people got out there because the great outdoors was we were encouraged more and more to do it, and the quote-unquote safe nature of playing golf. So I think the numbers kind of rose. Where are we today, uh, 2020 versus the numbers last year that we saw?
7: Um, we're probably, you know, pre-COVID um, versus you know where we're to today. We're probably down as an industry about fifteen to twenty percent uh, from where we were during COVID. But that's that's no surprise, Patty. I mean, pre-COVID. Uh, you know, this industry, uh, you know, was stable, but certainly there is more product and more market there. And that's that's a North American trend. That wasn't just Newfoundland Labrador. COVID certainly had a major benefit. It introduced golf again uh, to younger people. It was a safe environment. Uh, we were very fortunate that we could open up versus a lot of other uh, activities. So, of course, it, it drove people there. Uh, we saw people coming back that hadn't played golf in a long time. And uh, today, a lot of those people, you know, Continue to play golf. They don't play it as much because, of course, we're fully open up again. So there was no surprise that post COVID, you know, people would would have a tendency to drop off and go back to some of the other activities, or want to go back to some activities and try them again that they missed during the uh, during the pandemic. And uh, so it was really no surprise to us overall that we would see a bit of a decline. We have, however, saw a continued increase in membership as a whole, which is something that uh, pre COVID. We were continuously seeing a decline in in the general membership of people in golf courses uh, because there was so much product out there. A lot of people decided, well, I'd I'd sooner, you know, uh, play a diverse amount of golf courses than kind of be, you know, stay at one course during the during the season.
1: Yeah, I like to bomb around with my golf uh, dollars because there's a number of courses that I do enjoy. That included Ballyhaley, Haley, to be honest. I live in that neighborhood, and of course, been golfing played on those that ground for over a hundred years and so whether it be rerouting holes and at some point it's just going to become like a 15 hole or which is has no place in the game so you think that it's good to right-size the offerings from seven to six on the Avalon peninsula but i think there's also uh maybe sentimental but there's going to be a a significant group of people that are really going to miss the option valley Ballyhale.
7: and i don't disagree i mean it's it's what i call the old uh, the old style golf course, yep. and uh, unfortunately, um, you know, I've always said that we had a very diverse product within uh, not only in the province but in the Saint John's metropolitan area. You had everything from your your first class championship golf course and the Osprey at Pro Valley, uh, to your old old style golf course at Valley Haley. And unfortunately, today, you know, we've lost. Uh, we've lost one of those products in the golf industry, uh, albeit for various different reasons, business related. And of course, you know, directly golf related. And as you mentioned, I mean, you know, to shut down a golf course to try and and spend millions of dollars uh, to make major renovations. And still at the end of the day, Bally Haley wasn't sure if all of those renovations and upgrades were going to actually relieve them of that pressure and that problem. Um, so I think, you know, on a number of fronts, it was, you know, a good decision based on the membership themselves. And I can only speak for my thoughts not, you know, not as a whole as relates to golf, Newfoundland, Labrador, but there will be one less product. Um, I think it will make, uh, the golf community and the metropolitan area very stable as a whole, because, you know, as we know, the product grew versus the market and, uh, it will make everybody very stable. And I still, you know, I still feel that there is, there will be accessibility for tea times out there. You might not get to Clove Valley every day that you want, uh, or I should say Valley Haley. I apologize. i got to get used to that myself. Too. Uh, but, you know, there's always the willows out there, and the, the walls is just around the corner. I mean, it's only 45 minutes away when you think about it. And then you've got Pippi Park up on the hill, and, uh, um, you know, and, of course, there's Glen and um, So there's there's still a variety. And believe it or not, I mean, there's a lot of people that actually go out to the pitcher's pond uh, and beautiful little nine hole course out there. So you know there's a diverse product even if you include that uh, that facility as well
1: yeah Pitchers Pond is lovely uh, and I'm not going to get you to comments on you know people living in and around Bally Haley. Frustrated with golf balls hitting the house, running up in the yard when they bought a house on a golf course? Eh, I'll leave that alone. Uh, and yeah. I don't want to get you to play favorites, uh, but the best tracks in the province, just for me, I do appreciate playing at Clovelly, but between the Wilds, which if you don't have the driver going, it's going to be a long, long day, the Wilds, Nova, which I've long loved, and I've yet to play Humber Valley, but that is absolutely on my list for this summer.
7: It is, uh, the, you know, and this is not being disrespectful to anybody, but Humber Valley Resort is the premier golf course in the province. And, you know, and I don't say that just from myself, Patty, but every now and then we'll bring golf writers from, uh, you know, outside of the province, uh, you know, into into Newfoundland and let them experience the golf product. And, of course, they go back and, and do up, you know, articles and, and promotions for us in terms of, you know, the product in Newfoundland. And, and Barron on Humber Valley Resort is, is the premier course. And, I mean, I've had it stated that, you know, if, if Humber Valley was on the mainland, be no question it'll be a pga event there but again we do have some fantastic tracks you look at turnover the wilds um you know the the south course at uh, at valley these days i mean some great premier and even you know i've got to throw in there the willows is probably one of the most beautiful and challenging nine hole golf courses you'll find probably anywhere there's, um, so there's a couple you know, of shots so. at the willows that are almost impossible <laughs> yeah, exactly and it's an, a beautiful little nine hole course you know and yeah. uh, And the majority of our courses are also walkable. You know, a lot of people, uh, you know, there is a few, obviously, such as Humber Valley Resort and The Walls, unless you're in, you know, uh, pretty good shape. I mean, you you know, you take a power car, but the majority of our facilities are certainly, uh, you know, user-friendly in terms of walking ability as well.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Give me a car to turn over, though, all the same. Uh, It's (laughs) great to have you on the show, Greg. Hopefully it's a great season for all of the golf courses and the golfers out there listening to the program this morning.
7: Well, I appreciate you uh, inviting me on the show, Patty. Have a great day. You too, take Greg. Care. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: Greg Hillier, Executive Director of Golf and L. Nice little change of pace. Let's take a break. When we come back. Adam is here
0: to talk about daycare. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning,
1: Madam Adam Kilty. You're on the air.
8: Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you today?
1: Doing okay, thank you. How about you?
8: Oh, not too bad. Yeah, I heard your preamble there yesterday, but I uh, never had a chance to call in. I was hoping there was going to be a few more licensees and ECs calling in to speak about, you know, the, the OGP and the, uh, the new uh, wage grid and operating grant program there. But uh, it didn't seem like too many called in. Um, just kind of wanted to move on from where we were last week in the, uh, in the news there. Um, checking with the NL licensee group, which we're a part of. Uh, <laughs> there's still a lot of licensees out there without contracts. They have not received them yet. Um, Spoke to some, no payments out yet. And as for ourselves with our two centers, um, we actually received a contract on Friday and we received the other one on Monday, but uh, it's still very up in the air. You basically, I spent good Friday sitting down, crunching numbers, going over figures to make sure that I got enough money to cover off the next three months and then the time period the lag it takes to get your next payment for your quarter so uh yeah it's uh it's quite a situation to be in right now in the uh, child care industry when you know you're trying to provide quality child care for uh for parents and clients and make sure you got your staff looked at and yeah it's uh it's quite a time uh would like to thank the opposition uh myself and uh, my wife jennifer who were she's co-licensee with me um we were in the uh, House of Assembly last week there, and uh, we'd like to thank the opposition. They did speak out for us. Uh, I would like to say I would like to see Minister Haggy come on this morning and uh, give us all an apology. Uh, he sat in the House, and uh, he basically turned his back to us. We were a group there looking for answers and, uh, and uh, a department that we're supposed to trust. And we got our back turned. Let's like, go back yeah. to the
1: beginning a little bit because you're in yeah. the industry, so you understand all the different yeah. moving parts, whereas some of the listeners, including me, might not know them all. Okay. Sure. So without a contract means
8: what? So without a contract, we're underneath the operating grant program, which provides parents with that wonderful $10 a day program, you know, so they can avoid of uh, or avail of, you know, uh, affordable childcare. So we enter into an agreement with the government so that the rest of the fees are covered off for, uh, you know, for the year. So we get quarterly payments. um, But unfortunately, you know, we have to submit paperwork and it does take time for things to be uh, signed off and then payment has to be processed. So, you know, there is a lag of up to and, and over sometimes. Now, just going by what others have told us, we have never been more than 15 days waiting on a payment, but still when you have money lotted out for a quarter, and you end up into your next quarter, where you know you have your mortgages, you have your payroll, uh, you have your groceries to buy, you have your maintenance. Sometimes fifteen days on a small business is a long time when you're you're trying to keep everything afloat, right? So uh, it, it makes it quite tough the way this program is being rolled out with the lag for the funding.
1: So I know someone in the business, and what they're forced to do is rotate monies in and out of their line of credit simply to pay their staff
8: exactly uh that's actually happening right now we those questions from were posed to a lot of licensees in our group there and there are people who are doing that they're floating their daycare from month to month waiting for their new payments on their line of credit so then you know you're looking at interest charges from your bank and everything you know like a small business should not be running payroll through a line of credit like Thank God we're not at that point yet for our two senders, but hey, it, it we're we're getting to that point. Like our contracts are gone in and signed, uh, like I said, reviewed. I reviewed them, and uh, now we're waiting on payment. So our payroll uh, again, we our payroll now we're into the second week. So I put that in Friday gets paid out next week. So we're just uh, banking on that money is going to come in, right? So.
1: Uh, Help us understand what the wage subsidy looks like now and what we think it's going to look like when the new pay grid for early childhood educators is fully implemented.
8: Well, speaking on that, like from the ECE point, again, we listen to our staff and my wife. She's, uh, you know, she's on a lot of these groups there because she is an ECE. She's a level three ECE. She has done the program. She's, uh, you know, she's went to university also. She has her uh, education degree on top of a special needs degree. So, yeah, she's got uh, quite the lengthy underneath her signature um but yeah so some eces are happy the level ones what we're hearing especially from our level ones like uh they're basically getting the same pay now as they were before they entered into this uh, agreement and they're getting the same rate with their supplement being paid like, included in the rate so they never really uh got a raise um we're still waiting to find out there is another portion of it there for eces who were uh, a legacy wage so if you're making more want what, the, your wage plus your supplement, you'll get uh, that extra pay. We're still waiting for word on the government, how we're going to receive these funds, and uh, everything's kind of up in the air. We do have a town hall this afternoon, but a uh, little too late on the town halls from you know on our side of things as licensees. Uh, these town halls should have started 12 months ago, not in uh, February, I think, is when they started. It's a little late when you're trying to implement a program at the beginning of April, and for the government, uh, apparently April the 1st is their new fiscal year so why roll out a program like this at the beginning of a fiscal year when you know you can't produce those funds right away so it leaves us in limbo right
1: what so the plan to uh, expand the number of spaces by some 700 this year 6000 i think over the course of 4 years or 5 years the immediacy the concern today is primarily come from the parents of toddlers what's the complication there
8: well right now there are no daycare spaces to be had anywhere in my opinion in in newfoundland and labrador um every center out there are full uh jennifer uh she sat down yesterday and she was going through our wait list she was going back far as 2021 and reaching out to parents yesterday and they still don't have childcare. so fortunately we're getting prepared for september when we have our rollover for our uh, older preschoolers who are going off to kindergarten so we're you know we're opening up again cause we have um, we have 32 approximately uh, older preschoolers who will be going to school, so we're able to, you know, keep moving the process along and taking in more uh, toddlers. And we start at the at 18 months for the age, right? Um, another portion of this, like the government saying, okay, with this new ECE wage grid, uh, they're going to uh, be able to bring more C- more ECEs to the field. But the problem is. The childcare spaces are not there. Um, they have lots of funding there, and I know they're trying to push the not-for-profit. But uh, you know, for people like myself and a lot, of their, a lot of other licensees, we're in the we're not in the not-for-profit. We're in the profit sector, and th- the model they're producing there it doesn't work for us. So if we want to open up, it, it, it puts us in a hard state. We'll say to try to open up another center to to expand. So.
1: Lots of uh, different moving parts. here. I think the the number of children under the responsibility of one uh, one early childhood educator is eight. Uh, if I remember the uh...
8: again, yeah, the ratios and it goes on. You know, different age groups and uh, there, there's a whole a whole another mix to all of that. And as too bad Jennifer wasn't here because she'd be answering all those questions. I kind like of she does the day to day runnings and I do the you know the accounts payable, receivable, and and, and all of that, and the maintenance, so that, that's more the side that I'm on. Yeah, because uh, what,
1: yeah. what grabs the headlines, of course, is especially for people not working in it, don't, they don't have a license, they don't operate a daycare, it's $10 a day, which sounds terrific. And I know some people without children are saying, you know what, I shouldn't be paying for a space in a daycare. Well, I don't have children that need daycare. My boys are in their 20s, but I see the economic upside. Uh, and it's quite clear, if you look at other jurisdictions that have affordable, accessible daycare, it has a wide-reaching effect throughout the economy, whether it be the numbers of women in particular getting back to work, uh, of course, working, lo- working more, uh, moving up the ladder, making more, paying more taxes. There's just a lot of different issues that makes this a good idea. And again, I don't have any skin in the game because I don't have children that need daycare. But uh, anyway, uh, anything else from you this morning, Adam, before we say goodbye?
8: No, that's a great point there, and uh, there's not one licensee out there that does not want to see this $10 a day program work or the the wage grid. Again, it's kind of mixed bag with the ECEs who some, some are happy with it, some more are not. But, uh, yeah, the $10 a day, again, and there are great people down in the confederation building who are working on this, but the consultation part between government and our side is just not there. They're not far, far enough along with that part of it. And, uh, we, you know, we enjoy seeing parents. We're parents ourselves. Well, myself and my wife, we have three kids. So we know what the cost of childcare was before we started. And it's great to see people paying $10 a day. But as licensees, we can't be left with a lag there of not having the funds being rolled in from the government to keep these operations open from day to day. Uh, there are a lot of people right now, like I said, licensees who are, you know, but a skin of their teeth holding on, waiting for this uh, this new agreement to pay to come out so they can make sure they get their bills paid and uh, not have to be going to the bank. Some people, and it was said there in the interviews, uh, they're not able to go to their bank and get that large line of credit to cover off, you know, the, the excess time when you're waiting. So it's very unfortunate. And the government did send us out an email, and they were saying how it's an exciting time to be in child care. But as a licensee, uh, and this is coming directly from me, I'm not having a good time. I'm very scared for what the government is rolling out and how they're doing it. Like, uh, it, it makes us fearful. Appreciate your time, Adam. In- Stay yeah. in touch. Yes, I will. Thank you very much.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Let's go take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. Roy, you're on the air. Yes. Good morning, Patty. Morning.
9: Yes, Patty, I'd like to call to talk about seals. Uh, first of all, I'd like to throw a bouquet out to Ryan Clary uh, last week. He was on an interview with the Fisherman's Broadcast here. And uh, I think 99.9% of what he said was true, you know, but the contents of the seal stomachs, they're eating not only pelagics, they're eating crab for sure, you know. I called about a month ago, i called calling from Long Harbor, the major salmon river here, right? And uh, there was 40, 50 uh, harbor seals, the endangered ones (laughs) that you're not allowed to kill, uh, eating the salmon or whatever. So anyway, uh, I called Todd O'Brien. Todd is a great guy. Todd has been out and uh, Todd was supposed to bring a seal biologist with him and of course That didn't pan out. He didn't show up uh, two weeks after. So anyway, the Seals moved on to uh, the Northeast River, which is a a really, really good salmon area up around Placentia-Dunville that way, right?
10: And,
9: uh, you know, that's that's, that's what's going on. And uh, when Ryan uh, was finishing up on his uh, interview or speech, whatever you want to call it there on Thursday or Friday, he said, one thing that... uh, MPs, I want to talk about is their pensions and seals. And I, and I believe it. it. You know, it, it's a bad word. I'm putting out my herring nets tomorrow now, you know, the first for the year, right? And I, I've seen probably 10 or 12 uh, just off of my house. That's as far as I have to go with the herring nets, right? And tomorrow morning I'll have herring and I'll have uh, maybe a seal roll up one or two and nets torn up and uh, what do you do?
1: Well, that's the question now, isn't it, Roy? What do we do? Because I think if we're being honest, we well, we don't know exactly how many SEALs are out there, but there's somewhere in the neighborhood 7 or 8 million, and we know what they eat. That's no mystery. But then the question does become, what do we do? So what do we do?
9: Well, you're not allowed to do anything, Paddy. The damn thing is, I, I, I told you before, I think uh, my last, uh, roughly a month ago, like I, I done a course in, in the Marine Institute uh, probably about 30 years ago. And the cod worm comes from the intestine of the harbor seal, you know and, and they're endangered you're not you're you're, 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 you're you're not allowed to uh you're not allowed to kill the damn things right you know they're they're tearing the the, the, the guts out of salmon uh you know delivers all the yeast and in codfish uh my brother has a little cabin cottage whatever, just uh, i don't know twenty minutes from long harbor here. And after the winter, now like the the ocean, the erosion, whatever, uh, the seals can get into the pond down there. So there ain't even those sea trout getting ready to come out. Like it's it's it's, it's scandalous, boy. Like you know, just uh, you can put a, ba- a bounty on coyotes. I mean, you get so much uh, coyotes go or whatever. Why don't you do it with the damn seals? I mean, the, the coyotes are eating the moose, uh, a food food source of all Newfoundlanders, and we're not allowed to get salmon anyway. But I, I guarantee the seals are allowed to destroy them and. Uh, those biologists will say oh well there's only a small percentage of those I wouldn't say it was on my mind but like uh, if I left uh, long harbor and went to ship harbor if I didn't count 200 harbor seals not 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 the, you know the, the, the harp seal harbor seals on the rocks you know it's nuts by like you know for for them to be able to destroy like the ecosystem like that and and and, and uh, a new a fisherman not not allowed to you know take a uh, salmon uh, not only that, I mean, you know, they're eating the crab. I mean, like Ryan said, you're going open the guts of a seal. There's a crab in it. There's a, a pretty much every species of fish. in which is the main food source of the codfish, young cod and I don't and on, right?
1: Look, I think the fair point that you make there is that if we're going to put a bounty on a coyote and you know, compare the damage that a coyote can do as a predator versus what we know what the seals do, we know what they eat we know the amount that they eat or certainly thereabouts but yet no attention given to it, so that's, that's fair if you've got an animal that's you know, a moose tearing up your vegetable garden as a commercial farmer, or if you have a seal ripping up your herring nets and/or whatever they eat, and a coyote—what that might mean for at a chicken farm or something—they're all fairly legitimate overlapping comparisons. But no attention given to the issue that you're concerned with, with the harbor seal.
9: No, as as Ryan, Clary said, God love, God bless, God love, whatever. What he said so, so true. Yeah, I hope he's listening. You know, for seals to be able to do what they're doing, and and uh, bring that up in Ottawa. No, don't bad work. Don't talk about seals. Don't talk about seals for your pension. Anyway, I mean, uh, I, I hate to be repeating myself, but you know, I I am not giving up on this. Like, why didn't that biologist come out and look at the population of harbor seals? That are eating those salmon? No, he didn't come out, and those seals went to the next place of whatever to the next uh, Smorgasburg. And, and destroy, and they're still up, they're up Fox Harbor now under rocks by the hundreds. And they'll go from there to Ship Harbor, uh, to Venture until, you know. Anyway, it's, uh, I'm just, I'm just poised, but, uh, what can I say, Patty? But I don't know, it's, uh, it seems like they're talking, not you, but it seems like they're talking a deaf ear when you're talking to DFO, by and, and, and the higher ups, Patty.
1: Well, the DFO, uh, you know, at one point they say that the SEALs in the St. Lawrence are a problem. I'll, that's a summarizing word, a problem, but not necessarily off our far coast. What what the difference be? Uh, you know, some of that contradictory stuff is kind of nonsensical. And, you know, the key for politicians, look, we have unfortunately been browbeat by absolutely willfully dishonest propaganda. I mean, even over this Easter weekend, a notable Canadian celebrity was tweeting out pictures, calling us all animals or barbarians or whatever the word she was choosing was, and it was a picture from like 40 years ago, and clubbed of a white coat. I mean, we just can't get ahead of it. And some of the minds of people at the World Trade Organization and other countries in Europe and the United States, they've been so unbelievably brainwashed that I don't even know what we do. I don't know what kind of PR campaign could even be successful, given where we are and the amount of misinformation they've consumed regarding seals and the regulated humane seal hunt.
9: Uh, Greenpeace got too much right, seals got too much right. I'm glad you mentioned 40 years ago, because me and, and a dear friend of mine, he's passed on now, we brought in a seal about 40 years ago. The first seal was ever seen in the bay That could be 45 years ago, because I, I'm I'm 67, whatever. And when we brought in the two old guys underwater, I said, Oh my God, that's, that's seals right, I never see a seal. Now that was forty years ago now I think if you want to have your eyes closed, you know, them every every ten seconds you see seals. It's like why don't they come out and do a program with Roy Murphy? I'm on the ocean fifty five years, started fishing I our twelve year old, do the math. I like I know where they're to I would know where they're not to, but I tell you where they where they are to most of the time, eating the salmon at the mouth of the rivers and out in the ponds. Petty? That's my story, buddy, and I'm sticking to it. That's all I'm going to say.
1: Appreciate the time, Roy. Thanks, buddy. All the best. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's see. here. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're going to talk about a stroll in the park. Which one? Martin is going to fill us in after this.
0: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
1: Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number six. Martin, you're on the air.
11: Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm
1: doing okay, thank you. How about you? I'm doing pretty
11: good. I just got a quick question. I don't want to keep you too long. I know you have a lot more pressing issues to attend to. I'm phoning. I just got a new little puppy there a while ago, and I take it up on myself every day to go to Boring Park and walk around the park. It's fantastic, absolutely beautiful. It's always been beautiful. And every day I walk past that old red fountain. It's got like a lion on it. It's got a horse on it. I can remember being a kid. Horses used to drink out of it, and it was for dogs to drink out of, everything like that. Does that still work? Do you know?
1: (laughs) That's a good question. I don't know. I can picture the fountain, but I don't know if it works.
11: And I was wondering, because like, we moved home there a while ago and was like taking the dog for a walk, and I said I should phone and ask somebody, and you're the first person that came to my mind. So I figured I'd said I'd ask. I don't know if you or any of your listeners would know about it, but if it's not working, maybe we should uh, get it working again, because I can remember being a kid, and everybody loved that fountain.
1: I can find out and answer that question quite easily. I know someone at the Bowering Park Foundation. They should be able to give me an answer before the end of the show, and if and when they do, I'll be happy to say it on the air. Thank you ever so much, Patty. You have yourself a fantastic day. The very same to you, Martin. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. I do know that this past Easter Sunday that the park was absolutely full of people which is a good thing, it's a great thing uh, but that old fountain, I can picture it I'm sure most of you who have made your way to Bowering Park over the years know exactly what he's talking about so I'll get an answer, I know someone at the foundation and if they're listening or if someone who knows the answer to that question, fill us in and we'll let everybody else know Let's go to line number 2, good morning Megan, you're on the air
10: Hi, Patty. I'm a first-time caller. Thanks for taking it.
1: Happy to take your call. Welcome to the show.
10: Uh, I'm here to chat about a recent news story of a 73-year-old woman who was arrested for graffiti in the center city. If you're a, a Rabbit Town person like I am or spend any time on Harvey Road or La Merchant, she is a fixture of the neighborhood, and she is severely mentally ill. One thing she is going for is she's often appropriately dressed for the weather, which is good for people that are concerned like myself, but she is not well at all. She's often screaming and yelling obscenities. She carries around a dirty, soaking wet mop and literally cleans the streets and the sidewalk, ripped up garbage bags. Uh, She's not well, and if you're around, you know her. Uh, It's not right that she somehow managed to get spray paint and spray painted um, a local business, but her photo uh, was shared all over social media. uh, This vulnerable old lady uh, by the business owner, who I won't name, Um, a number of us pleaded with her to take that photo down, Uh, And then the cops were called and this senior citizen, this vulnerable lady, has been arrested. And uh, I'm just seething about the whole thing and, and feel like the story needs some context.
1: Uh, fair enough. I'm glad you brought it up. I did not bring it up off the top because I was trying to find out a little bit more about what went down, but I know who that person mm-hmm. is. I don't yeah. live in that uh, actual neighborhood, but I've been there enough that I know exactly who this woman is.
10: Yeah, and, and, and I do too. And and the sad thing is, so would the police, I'd say, because their their shop looks over Harvey Road. I mean, you, you, you'd have to just not be walking around with your eyes open not to know her. And again, I'm not dismissing what she's done, but there is no way she. Has the capacity to understand what she is doing. This was not targeted. Most people who are graffitiing are doing so in the cover of darkness at four in the morning, not at one thirty in the afternoon on a Sunday. Um, you know, it's unfair to the business. They have to clean it. I get it. There is Crime Stoppers for something like that. To jump the gun and call the cops and for them to arrest her, I'm flabbergasted. I did call the RNC yesterday. I have no connection to this woman. I'm not her family or. An advocate. I work in the community with mental health and autism, so this just tipped me. Um, and, and I just said, you know, is she okay? Not that they can answer me, but she's sitting there in the lockup all night awaiting a hearing. And I'm wondering what her capacity is to even understand what's going on and who is there to help her.
1: It's a completely legitimate concern that you're sharing, and I know that the RNC has, you know, taken it upon themselves to put in new models for responding, responding to mental health related matters. You know, I believe it's called the Memphis model, and we learned a lot when you say you're working uh, with people in the autistic community. We remember that story a number of years ago, where a young autistic boy on Topsville Road was arrested, and yes. everything that stemmed from it, and the learning that we all went through because of that one incident. Yeah, but Mike. I guess the question would be, is when there's an expense associated with having to clean up the spray paint, how does the community react? How does law enforcement act? How should this have unfolded, knowing that this woman is, I think— well demonstrated that she does have a problem and she has issues. So what do we
10: do? Uh, Exactly. And, you know, I don't have an answer. I just think the the first knee-jerk reaction to share a vulnerable person's photo on on social media was, was wrong. And I wish that person didn't do that. That post was not removed until this morning's news came out that she was arrested. So a number of us were pleading with this business owner, like, come on now. This woman, you know her it's not right, but she's not well. Her photo shouldn't be all over social media for everyone to attack and comment and make fun of her. It was, that alone was disgraceful. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I guess the cops have the responsibility to act and arrest once the complaint is made. And they had photo proof. I mean, it's obviously her that did it. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that's not in question. But And when I spoke to the RNC yesterday, I have to say the woman was great and she said what you did, the Memphis thing. Uh, You know, there is a process and a checklist and checking capacity. But regardless, she's been there overnight and she's awaiting some sort of hearing today. And I don't know if she's connected with the gathering place or the Naomi Center or whomever. I don't know if she even has family. But I know she spends eight hours a day scrubbing the streets of Harvey Road, screaming obscenities all day long. So how much does she even know of what she's, she's done and what's to come of her?
1: You know, if, if we look at the system uh, at the broad strokes, the way that we deal with the interaction between law enforcement and folks who have mental health matters or concerns or issues, there's a lot we don't do right. And there's a huge gaps in the system. And even if you just look at the numbers, and we hear this from uh, court officers, lawyers, judges, what have you, is that if you even just look inside the walls of HMP, and I know we're talking about the 73-year-old woman, but if some somewhere in the neighborhood of 80% of those inside those walls are dealing with a mental health issue or a drug addiction, it just begs the question, are we on the right track? Because for folks with those issues or concerns, r- incarceration does little other than take them off the street until they get out. And are they any better off when they are released versus when they were first incarcerated? And the answer is quite clearly, for the vast majority no. of them, no, right? Yeah, so exactly. It really does beg the broad stroke question of, are we on the right track? And I just don't think we are. Now, it's not yeah. to say that there's a free pass necessarily for everyone in those two categories.
10: Absolutely, yeah.
1: But if, if because everybody inside HP is getting out. At some point, they're all getting out. And if we haven't done enough to, one, stabilize mental health concerns while incarcerated, two, provide some direct assistance for kicking an addiction, then the issue regarding recidivism is quite clear. They're getting out and they're going back in. And unless we do more, we're not doing anything for public safety. If people are just bloodthirsty and want their pound of flesh, that might make you feel good. But then you're going to have to go back to uh, six months down the road or two years down the road and have the exact same person with the exact same concerns committing a very similar crime and back in they go. Are we any further ahead as a society? No. Are we doing anything about public safety? Nope.
10: And even for this woman, I mean, you know, you can't force adults or anybody to, to do programming or do something during the day, but obviously there isn't enough for her to to spend her time doing something more safe and functional during the day. She, she cleans like as though the city's panner up and down Harvey Road, garbage bags full. I mean, God love her. But that's also not functional for her safety, for her head, her mental health, being outside in all kinds of weather. And then guess what? She finds an old dirty can of spray paint and suddenly she's an artist. I mean, she has nothing else to do. No one there with her. It's heartbreaking. I'm, I'm sick about it. And I'm not trying to be all precious. And again, I don't even know the woman. And I'm not the only one that called the RNC. A few people up and down Harvey Road, other business owners, have called and, and did what I did and just said she's not alone. There are activists and people who care in the community, and we know her to a degree, and we're just hoping she's okay. And if you needed anecdotal anything from a concerned citizen saying this person is not out to harm or hurt anybody, we're here to talk.
1: Fair enough. I really appreciate your time and the conversation, Megan. Thank you, Patty. You have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, I guess if we're – we all share the same concerns. We want to be safe where we live. We want it to be safe for our children. We want to be able to go about our business uh, without interference, without our safety being jeopardized. And we see the numbers. We know the concerns. And so if some 80% of those going through the turnstiles at the courthouse and consequently into one of the prisons, whether it be out in Clarenville or Bishops Falls or Stephenville or Majesty's Penitentiary, the concerns are very, very similar. So if it's about keeping the public safe, if it's about effective policing, if it's about understanding that unless we talk about dangerous offenders who may indeed never see the light of day again, but almost everybody else in a federal or provincial prison is getting out, what does that initial incarceration mean for long term improvement to public safety? You know, some of the crimes may indeed be not exactly violent, but even a robbery has an air of violence uh, surrounding it. So, what are we doing? And are we on the right track and are things getting any better? And I think if we're being honest, the answer to that is clearly no. So I don't pretend to have all the solutions, but I think just simply acknowledging that we are not doing the best we can for individuals or society at large probably brings on a conversation about how can we do it better, right? I don't know. What do you think? Let's take a break. When we come back, Hollis is in the queue. He's the VP of the Labrador Hunting and Fishing Association. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the Vice President of the Labrador Hunting and Fishing Association. That's Hollis Yetman. Good morning, Hollis. You're on the air.
12: Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. I, I'd like to uh, bring up uh, once again this year about the illegal harvesting of uh, endangered woodland caribou in Labrador, and uh, I know it's an ongoing issue. And uh, and I think it's almost 365 days since we had this last conversation. And uh, when I called out uh, publicly, Minister Derek Bragg to uh, to take action, and um, I had some great discussions with uh, Minister Bragg after that fact, and uh, and uh, I was com- comfortable and confident that was going something was going to take place that we could try to alleviate some of the pressures on woodland caribou from uh, bullets of uh, belonging, to, belonging to Quebec hunters. And uh, here we are a year later, and we have more endangered caribou. Uh, and absolutely no consequences. Uh, I think since we talked last year, not one thing has been done since last year uh, in order to uh, deal with this situation. I don't think there's a deal with the Quebec Innu. There's no deal with the Quebec leaders, uh, political leaders. Uh, there's a lack of enforcement plan on behalf of the provincial government to deal with the illegal harvest of endangered caribou. And it's a big fail uh, the way I see it. And, um, you know, I, I, I for the last three months, we've had the Quebec... Uh, Inu in southern Labrador, south of the Churchill River, harvesting our protected uh, caribou, and you know, uh, I would talk to the provincial government on multiple occasions and uh, and try to get the uh, the answers. And you know, if I hear the words "monitor the hunt" one more time, I think I'm going to puke. Uh, you know, Labrador sits and watches uh, as we have a couple groups of people work to rob the rest of us of the opportunity to eat caribou ever again, and. Uh, and I know the provincial government has the jurisdiction, but they are a federally protected species, and uh, we have Parks Canada. Uh, we have the Mealy Mountain herd within the Parks Canada uh, area, uh, Mealy Mountain caribou herd within Parks Canada, and there's there's a total lack of enforcement presence uh, for Parks Canada here. In addition, we have no federal wildlife officers. The Canadian Wildlife Service is non-existent, and I don't even know if they show up uh, when they notice these hunts are on and um here we are once again trying to deal with uh with these hunts and save our caribou and uh, i think it's high time that uh that the problem stepped up
1: yeah so i mean look, the ban has been in place since i believe 2013 so whether it be mealy mountain or lack joseph red wine george river whatever the the story is not new and it is absolutely a worry The problem becomes, I would imagine, for politicians to be gun-shy, poor choice of words, but to be gun-shy on this one, is that if you hear from either Todd Russell or, say, other representatives, they'll say that the caribou is part of their culture, part of their identity, part of their food source, part of uh, their uh, traditions. I get all that, except if the herds are not protected, then the ability to even access caribou as part of their heritage, culture, or traditions won't be there. So it's... And that's why politicians are afraid of it, because it's very much a cultural push and pull that comes across on a variety of fronts when it's the relationship between the indigenous communities and others is because they're afraid of it. It's pretty simple, a hundred percent. and and I, you know, I used to believe when I, when I worked with the
12: department, there was always that hope and that the chance that, uh, that people were going to see and hear uh, what we were preaching and uh, I don't believe that anymore to be honest with you. I think the uh, the red wine caribou herd in particular they're in central Labrador uh, mostly south of the Churchill River now. There's not many north of the Churchill River so they're, they're, the uh, Quebecian who have access to that area, that's that's where they traditionally hunted but the fact remains if if the hunt continues and, and you don't have to take my word for it there, there are provincial biologists that are you know, studying the herds uh, in detail, and they can tell you what the numbers are like. And if they come on and say, well, we can we can sustain a hunt and uh, the numbers are growing, we're all fine and good. But uh, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think the case is the numbers are dwindling, the uh, the areas that the occupy are getting smaller, and, uh, you know, we're, we're eventually going to see the extirpation of uh, caribou in southern Labrador. That's my belief.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a few years ago that we had this... Little bump in population of the George River herd, and it was minimal, but it was the first time in years that we'd seen any type of increase. But if you look at the historical context, if there's whatever, maybe 8,000, 7,000 animals in that particular herd, at one point it looked like the hills were moving because there were hundreds of thousands of them. So a little bump in population one year is a feel good story, but totally eliminates any historical reference
12: yeah yeah i i as that is correct and and the uh you know there are groups of people in labrador uh, i'm not saying there's all quebec residents there are people on the north coast uh, a couple of communities up there that are harvesting caribou constantly and uh you know uh, the rest of us are looking at it and saying we all harvest the caribou here the rest of us are looking at it and saying well that's not that's not fair some people are saying well they're allowed to hunt them let's go we can go hunt them too and 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 they're probably right. There's probably every Indigenous person in Labrador could go on caribou and nothing be done about it. But what the fact remains, we you know people brag and preach that they're keepers of the land and they uh, respect the land and and uh, but but yet I know there's there's people within our uh, province and 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 people in Quebec that would shoot the last one walking up in front of them and uh, not blink an eye. And I don't know how that's protecting the land. And and uh, and uh, you know this this is where we are
1: and this is an important conversation and this probably hasn't very little to do with it but i've long been fascinated let's stick with george river for a minute because that's a migratory herd you yep. know to follow the same path and maybe put their hoofs in the exact same hoof print from last year over the course of thousands of kilometers is just truly remarkable
12: yeah well the area that they travel now is a lot smaller than it used to be when the numbers were large but uh, but they still travel the same paths uh, in general and, uh, and, you know, traditional uh, Indigenous hunters know that, and they know where to find them at certain times of the year, and, and that harvest is going on in, in northern Labrador as we speak also. Uh, the difference is there's a ban on George River caribou. They're not a federally protected species at the moment, right. but, but the ones in southern Labrador are. And I think, uh, you know, to that end, uh, if we have a federal department that's uh, regulated to protect endangered species, I mean, we don't have that many endangered species in Labrador. And there, I know there's a lot of effort on some of the other ones but uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador, I'm sorry. I know there's, uh, you know, there's some protections and uh, trying to, uh, all of those are protected species. But, boy, the ones, the caribou in Labrador, they've been protected for, uh, the, uh, since 2013, I believe it is, maybe 2003. And uh, there's just not the uh, support there to keep them alive. I mean, the bullets from the guns of hunters are their biggest uh, detriment.
1: Yeah. So... When you talk about the federally protected species, and you know there is a provincial jurisdiction here, but so where does the responsibility lie then, Alice?
12: Well, it depends on who you talk to. I know the <laughs> provincial government, local guys, they they local enforcement officers, they put in an effort, but there's only a, a handful of them. They put in the effort that's required, and and they can only do uh, do so much, and and they're told to only do so much. But uh, you know, we have a federal department that uh, that's. Uh, obligated to act uh, when it comes to endangered species and uh they're non-existent in labrador that's the canadian wildlife service uh to be honest i think there's only half a dozen officers in the whole province and i think most of the work that they do is on migratory birds and uh on the on the coastlines. but I, I stand to be corrected on that
1: Hollis, always appreciate your time thanks for this this morning
12: uh, thanks for taking my call patty and i really hope that the uh the politicians stand up and uh, take action uh call on minister bragg to make a public statement about the uh the hunting activity and what's been done uh, so far since last year when we had the same conversation thanks
1: appreciate it take care bye-bye all right bye-bye uh solace vp of the labrador hunting and fishing association it's time for the newscast here at 11 30 when we come back elizabeth's in the queue to talk
0: about the rnc don't go away Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one.
1: Elizabeth, you're on the air.
13: Oh, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Just listening to a lady a couple of callers back about the RNC and that unfortunate incident with the lady. Look, I called this morning to throw a bouquet out to the RNC. I have a son who's dealing with schizophrenia since he's 17, and he spends a lot of time at the Waterford, but occasionally, like last week, he went missing. And when he goes missing, your heart just sinks because you don't know where he's at. But he walked to McDonald's on uh, on Torbay Road, and while he was there, I called a few places, and there was a policeman that kind of knew him from... Bring him back and forth to the Wilderford when he goes missing. He actually bought him a meal and got my number and called me and said, "Your son is here. I just bought him a meal. I've contacted you know my and I said I've contacted him too." So he said, "He looks pretty tired because it was a long walk." But anyway, they were so good to him, Patty. It's unbearable. So the policeman later that night took the time to call me. I'm out in Hollywood. I couldn't get in as quickly as I should, and. Told me by the man, really young man. He even gave him a cigarette, you know, when he got him in the car and brought him back to the hospital, because the staff there are excellent to him. And he's been there over a year and a half, and it's it's a long, long journey, okay. But when you got people like the RNC who know, you know that if if I call him and say, look, he's missing. He went for a walk. He likes to walk when he's not well. I know at the moment I call, they take my message, They take a description, and they find them, and if not, I go looking for them myself, me and my daughter. But it ha- has been a long, long journey. But the bouquet I'm throwing this morning to the RNC, is too bad that poor lady wasn't taking a short stay at the where they could have done an assessment or something on her, because they truly are wonderful there.
1: Well, and, and that's the issue, is sometimes... Like most issues, uh, people are all in or they're all out, and that law enforcement is good or law enforcement is bad, and there's no in-betweens, and that every single case is handled the exact same way, which is simply not true. You know, could they have done better with this particular issue yesterday regarding the 73-year-old woman? By the look of it, yes, they absolutely could. But then stories like yours get lost, because people who just want to think that everything that the cops do is bad and they're all bad people just eliminates the... Uh, obvious that they're not all bad and it's not every single interaction is terrible. So that's what makes some of these conversations quite difficult. Even if I say one reasonable word or you say one reasonable word about the RNC and in this case thrown a, a distinct bouquet their way, is I can guarantee you in the next 30 seconds I'll get a handful of emails telling me that I'm a bootlicker or that I'm willing to cover up for all their black marks and their, some of the mistakes that they make, which, of course, is not true. We can talk about the mistakes, but we also acknowledge that some of these interactions have been quite helpful, including yours and your son's.
13: Yes, and you know what? Uh, I don't mind telling you I was a member of the House of Assembly, and every day that I got up to speak, I spoke about mental illness because it was very dear to my heart. And it hasn't been an easy journey, I might as well tell you. And the moment that I get that call that he's missing, I don't know, but he's hit by a car or something's happened to him. And that's the biggest fear in your life till he's found and he's safely back at the hospital.
1: And so I guess that's the good news, because I can only imagine the feeling when you get the call. Uh, So if it's working the way it's supposed to for you, that's the good thing. That's the good news.
13: Yeah, so now go back and forth to the hospital three, four times a week for visits. He's only 28 years of age. He finished his education, but schizophrenia hit. And that was the hardest thing that could ever hit, okay, because it's incurable. Nothing works for it. The only thing he got, he got his family behind him. And I know out there that the hospital is my second support. And the RNC, like I said, he goes missing. He, went, he goes missing occasionally, and the moment he goes missing, we know he's walking. He'll walk from the Waterford to Torbay Road. He'll walk anywhere, and I'll keep saying, but why do you walk? I just need to walk,
1: and that's one of his ways of dealing with it, okay? Fair enough, uh, and I don't want to get too personal because some of this is absolutely none of my business, so feel free to ignore, but how does the schizophrenia manifest itself with your son? Because I think, unfortunately... Many people listening will hear the word schizophrenia and think we're dealing with someone who's quite violent and dangerous oh. and the rest. So, how does it manifest itself with your son?
13: My son is the, young, the most gentlest young man. He wouldn't hurt a fly. He's manly. Everybody keeps telling me he's like an angel, but he's got schizophrenia. It's drug resistant. It's he's, it's hard to control. So, if he stops taking medication. Uh, it it he hears voices. He hears voices to the point the aliens. It drives him mad, and I wouldn't want to live inside of his brain for one minute. You know what I'm saying? To live inside of his brain to be so tormented. I go visit him. We're sitting in a room, and the nurses are so good out there. And he'll say to me, uh, "The voices." got me drove. And that's exactly what it is. And it's got to be one of the hardest things. He finished his high school education when my husband died. I thought it was the death, but it was schizophrenia that got involved in grade 12 before he finished, and that was the end of it, okay? It's been numerous, numerous, numerous days at the water for over there at the wild of it, they're so good with him. That's all I have to say. The nurses, he came home yesterday for his brother's birthday, who has autism. He was awesome. I let him out around. There was no fair of running away. I live in a sub. He walked around several times and brought him back in last night, 9 o'clock. And he never hates to go back, never always wants to go back because he feels safe there.
1: Uh, thank you very much for sharing your story this morning, Elizabeth.
13: And thank you, Petty, for listening, but I just wanted to say the RNC, I know everybody's got their issues, but I can say there is no better. And they're, they're so trained with, with mental illness, and that's what we should look at.
1: Thank you very much. Nice speaking with you. Okay. Nice chatting with you, Petty. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's keep going here. Let's say good morning to Derek Stavitzer, who's with the Parkinson Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. He's the executive director. Good morning, Derek. You're on the air.
14: Good morning, Patty.
1: how's everybody doing today? Couldn't be better, how about you? Oh, good, bye, it's good. So I believe today is World Parkinson's Day, is it? It is, it's a day we celebrate,
14: uh, well, celebrate's probably not the right word, a day we recognize uh, Parkinson's disease, and in our province, the so 1,500 people who are living with it.
1: Let's go over and start at the very beginning. So, it's a brain disorder. But, it is. And there's yep. several different stages. I can't remember having read about it in the past, but there's different stages of Parkinson and how it presents early on. So what should people know about these different stages to recognize them, the forms of diagnosis, what have you? Tell us what we need yes. to know.
14: So generally there are five stages of Parkinson's. So most people recognize Parkinson's through the uh, tremor that people will experience uh, <clears throat> early in the process. But really Parkinson's symptoms can begin long before you recognize that tremor in your left hand or your right arm. Um, things like anxiety, depression, loss of smell, things like that often occur in patients long before they go to their doctor with a tremor in their hand. Um, so by the time you're diagnosed, you may have been living with Parkinson's for two or three or four years. The problem we have right now in this land Labrador is that diagnosis. So we have a long wait time right now to get that diagnosis it can be two to three to four years for some people once they go to their family doctor and say i have these issues before they actually see a neurologist to get that formal diagnosis
1: and what does that lag mean real time well
14: it's, it's significant so apart from the stress and anxiety of not knowing what you have you're also then not being able to avail the medications and various therapies that are available to help you cope with the disease
1: and how effective are the treatments?
14: Um, they're good. The thing about Parkinson's is that every patient is so different. So everyone will progress differently with the disease. For most patients, once you're diagnosed, and you start your medications, you start exercising, you can have many years of a healthy life. When you don't have that diagnosis and you don't start the medication, you don't start the therapies like it like the exercise programs that we have available then you're declining more rapidly than someone who starts those programs
1: so of course it's not just one age group that is susceptible to Parkinson's you know you think of the difference between someone at the age of 60 where I think that's in and around where most people it, develop this.
8: you're
14: right that's about the average age of diagnosis anything under age 55 is considered young onset Uh, But we are actually seeing more and more young people in this province being diagnosed with Parkinson's.
1: So people will picture Michael J. Fox, for instance, you know what I mean? You know, and he has a pretty massive foundation dealing with Parkinson's. Absolutely. What's a normal lifespan? Let's just move to the folks in the general age of around 60. What's a lifespan look like, even with appropriate treatment and hopefully early diagnosis?
14: Yeah, it's really tough to say, Patty, because I said, everyone progresses so differently. So there really is no set pattern that someone's going to follow once they're diagnosed. And then also you may be dealing with other health issues as well on top of the Parkinson's, and that's very common for our members. They're dealing with heart disease or diabetes or some other issue. So that obviously makes life more challenging for those folks. But for, say, an average individual, of average health who's diagnosed in their 60s, they can live a very good healthy life for at least 10 to 15 years after diagnosis. My father was diagnosed at approximately age 55 and lived until 72.
1: Sometimes I have to admit when I'm about to ask a question that's based in ignorance, but here it goes. So <laughs> now that's, that's not unusual for you, Patty. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I, just because sometimes it's even just hard to know how to ask certain questions. So yeah. with end-stage Parkinson's, and I've yeah. seen it, it can be yeah. really disturbing and obviously quite Absolutely. painful. But does does a Parkinson's disease for all lead down the path towards dementia?
14: Uh, Not for all, but for many. So there is a Parkinson's-related dementia, and there's also an offshoot of Parkinson's called Lewy body disease, uh, where plaques similar to Alzheimer's dementia will start to develop in a person's brain. So that does lead to a dementia um the 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 end stage of parkinson's is is not a pretty experience uh and we try our best to help both our member and the family who are going through that as best we can and the, the the palliative care program here in the province while it's not perfect does a very good job of helping
1: with that as well we've been talking about preparation for what's coming provincially and nationally regarding The numbers of people living with Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, you know, whether it be aging in place or preparing at long-term care facilities, what have you, where are we? Where do we need to be?
14: Uh, Patty, this is probably one of the scariest things that we can talk about. So all of the modeling that we are seeing coming from every single jurisdiction around the world Uh, because our population is aging in most of these jurisdictions is that the number of people living with Parkinson's is going to double in less than 10 years so given that we're having difficulty handling the number of patients that we currently have if that should come to pass and all the information is leading that way uh, we really have to be prepared for that so that means enhancing our ability to diagnose and care for the people who are who are diagnosed but it also has significant implications for the long-term care in this province as well. So when our goal is to keep people in their homes as safe and as long as possible. However, at a certain point for both the safety of the person living with Parkinson's and their caregivers, long-term care is generally the only option that's left. When a person living with Parkinson's goes into long-term care because of their special needs, it takes an extra degree of effort to accommodate these folks. And some of our long care facilities, central care facilities, may not be able to accommodate that right now. We really, really need to be sure that we have that capacity and those resources in place as we move forward over the next 10 years.
1: Just in an effort to give some of the forecast numbers coming from some pretty comprehensive studies, and it's not necessarily all about Parkinson's, but even if we just say, for instance, uh, preparation for the future and dementia. So they say by 2030, they anticipate there will be an increase of about 190,000 cases per year. On the national front. By 2050, there's a thought that maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.7 or 1.8 million Canadians will be living with dementia. So whether that be uh, Parkinson's-related matters or Alzheimer's-related matters, these numbers cannot be ignored. If we're already finding ourselves in a pretty tight spot for an awful lot of folks here in this province and across the country for the appropriate levels of care, home supports, long-term care, whatever the case may be, if we don't get out in front of this, it will be more chaotic, more expensive, and more damaging to the individual and their families because the numbers are really quite clear.
14: Kate, uh, you, Patty, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. What you're saying there is exactly what's coming at us, and we've got to be ready for it now. Those numbers are not lying. Uh, when I look at the numbers that were provided to me from this nine Labrador Center for Health Information only a few months ago, uh, from 2009 to 2018, which is the most recent numbers they were able to give me, it, that showed a 33% increase in the number of Parkinson's patients in this province. And that was all, the only numbers they were able to provide to me were for uh, uh, non salary physicians that were charging MCP with a billing code for Parkinson's. So that didn't include the salaried physicians in this province who were treating people with Parkinson's. So it's happening already, and we're seeing it with our membership. Uh, we're adding more members. I've been the executive director now for nine years. We've been adding more members over the last few months than we have in any other period in those nine years.
1: Is there any way to turn back the clock on cells that stop working or stop making or die off that produce dopamine? Is that, you know? <laughs> so- well,
14: if, if we had, yeah, if we had that, that would be the cure, right? Because it is. That, that's what happens. Uh, going back to your first question about you know, about what you know, where Parkinson's coming from and, and, and what's happening with the stages, uh, it is caused by a lack of dopamine-producing cells in your brain and dopamine is a whole lot of things in your body uh, from mood and energy to muscle control. So when those cells start to die off, you start experiencing the beginning stages of Parkinson's and as they continue to die off, the Parkinson's gets worse. Uh, we are actually doing some interesting research here at Memorial University uh, with blueberries and blueberry extract. So uh, we actually fund a $10,000 research grant every year. Uh, most times that does go to the university here and we've funded uh, three separate blueberry studies and the information coming out of that is that eating blueberries and if you can believe it, blueberry leaves uh, can help in alleviating some of the Parkinson's-like symptoms in uh, fly models and mice models they haven't got the humans yet but that will be the next stage hopefully a little ways down the road
1: that's interesting cuz you know people talk about blueberries and their antioxidant properties so
14: exactly yep so um, you know if anything else eating blueberries is definitely not bad for you so uh, eat some blueberries
1: it's not kind on the dentures but I'll take that hand off
14: um so a couple other things. Uh, we do have, and I mentioned exercise being very important for people who are living with Parkinson's. So we offer free exercise programs across the province right now, both in person and uh, online. So uh, if anyone would like to join up those programs, just give me a call at the office, or you can uh, best, best just find us on the Internet. is also a very easy way find us on our website at www.nlparkinson.ca and um, we can get you set up and join some of those programs if you're not already involved in them. So like I said, we have something happening every day that people can take advantage of, and the exercise is very, very important. Uh, Research is very clear that the people who exercise and live with Parkinson's have a much better outcome.
1: Really great to have you on the show, Derek. Thank you for your time.
14: No worries. One other thing I'll mention quickly. Sure. Um, We, along with Rainbow Riders, will be beneficiaries of the Tim Horton's Smile Cookie Week again this year, I'm very happy to say, in the St. John's area. And that's coming up May 1st to the 7th this year. They're doing it a little bit earlier this year. So get out there, buy your smile cookies, and that helps us finance all of our exercise programs.
1: Appreciate this, Derek. All right. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Right, Derek Stobitzer, the Executive Director of the Parkinson's Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. Final break the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. We're a little bit tight for time, so we won't squeeze anyone else on today and hopefully you'll be able to join us tomorrow. But just got this email. I'm going to put this out there. This poor woman says she's devastated. She's missing her cat. So... The cat's been missing from Newfoundland Drive since Wednesday. The cat's name is Fiona. Mostly white, body shaved, flat face, fluffy grayish tail, dark ears, legs, and face. Possibly spotted out in Paradise at Lanark Drive. So if you see little Fiona around, you can call this particular lady. And her number is 697-9981. So once again, the cat's name is Fiona. Mostly white, shaved body, flat face, fluffy grayish tail, dark ears, legs, and face. She's missing if you spot her and can help. Please do exactly that. All right, uh, one final check-in now on the Twitter box. where are sim open line. You can follow us there. Thankfully, there was lots of back and forth between a few listeners about the topic I brought up off the top, about artificial intelligence, notably chat GPT, and how it may or may not be utilized by students. The big concern has been post-secondary, but, of course, with the... Youth's uh, knowledge of technology and the utilization of it's very likely going to creep more and more to the high school and junior high classes. And what is it that we can do about it? It's not to say banning it, because banning, banning things just doesn't work anyway. But how do we ensure that it can be incorporated as a refining tool, but also doesn't do away with the thirst or the motivation to learn? Because you can probably use it effectively and not completely destroy the integrity of the system and not be simply cheating, as opposed to use it as, as, as it's intended. Well, in best case scenarios, as it's intended, as a tool, not to be all and end all. Anyway, that was a good back and forth from those listeners. All good. And maybe a call on that would be helpful. I suppose what would be best for me, and maybe for most of you, is if we can get someone who can come on and really boil this down to brass tacks. How it works, what the upsides are, what potential risks are, how to talk about it or consider it when it comes to post-secondary or anywhere in the K-12 system, you know, something we can understand, because I admit freely, I don't really understand it that much, but let's see what we can do. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all of the callers, listeners, emailers, and tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.